Okay. Good morning, everybody. We're going to get started. Uh, we have a lot to do today. Uh, we're really going to try, after we discuss uh, Ukraine and world developments, uh, we're going to try to further get into the introduction uh, to Hegel's science of logic. But I would say uh, these things are not unconnected. They're very connected, uh, especially some of the categories that Hegel uses, uh, such as uh, quantitative changes becoming qualitative changes. We might be in the throes of a significant political change in world, political, social, and economic relationships. Uh, as such, it's possible, I think, I was discussing this with Serafina, to see light at the end of the tunnel, uh, which I don't think was so apparent for any number of years now. Uh, I just have to say that we in the free school weathered a lot of storms over these last seven years, or maybe more than that, but certainly in this period, we weathered many storms because we refuse to bend uh, to the idea that the neoliberal globalist cabal, which seeks, sought then and seeks now uh, to rule humanity and to rule the world. And for some reason, we in the free school wouldn't bend to that. Uh, we did not uh, feed into the narrative that Trump is a fascist. Uh, and as I said to uh, Don DeBar uh, on uh, many occasions, I said, if Trump is a fascist, then what does that make Hillary? Uh, and, uh, and really, whether that language as, apply, as, uh, as they applied it to US politics uh, had any meaning at all. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the developments in the Ukraine are events that have impact upon the world and global politics. And, and you know, one of the things about the preschool, and I was saying uh, to Kathy, you know, I so appreciate the preschool and all of you all, I'm, you know, I'm like the OG. I don't want to say old head. I just say OG, like old gangster. <laughs> you know, I think Eddie prefers me to use that kind of language. <laughs> um, in the free school, but um, I know I would not have been able 
to stand up to a lot of things such as the way I was canceled, and I would say brutally canceled. Uh, and that uh, and a couple years afterwards, now I'm being accepted again. <laughs> you know? uh, but I think um, you know, like um, King always quoted um, I forget who uh, James Russell Lowell truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, but it is the scaffold that sways the future by which um, uh, Lowell meant truth on the scaffold to be hung, to be murdered, wrong forever on the throne, having the power to snuff out the truth. Um, but it is truth ultimately that wins the day. And again, you know, and, and we, you know, we, we stuck to that in the free school. Uh, in fact, Martin Luther King would quote it and, you know, Du Bois uh, uses it as a introductory quote in the, I think it's the third chapter of Souls of Black Folk. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, and um, and it is the truth that matters, and there is truth. That's the first thing. There is truth, and we can know the truth, and we can struggle to know the truth, even in spite of all of the obstacles placed in our way. And again. Um, the free school is primarily made up of young people, uh, which is a great thing. Uh, and I, I want to say to you all, don't feel that because you're young, you don't know enough to wage the struggle. Uh, being, I'll put it this way, older myself. <laughs> Uh, and, and knowing older people, uh, what I've experienced is that it's easier for them to talk about what was than to talk about what must be. And it's easier to have opinions and authorize those opinions by the claim that I was from back in the day. Right. Well, I'm from back in the day, but being from back in the day doesn't mean mm -hmm. that you are struggling in this day, in this time, you know? Uh, so many of them have dropped out uh, and it's very difficult for you all to detect it like I can, uh, all of the various excuses for not continuing the struggle. Mm -hmm. And no one is asking of the free school or anybody else uh, to put your life in jeopardy uh, or to do things that uh, are harmful to you. It's only a matter of standing up for what is right. Mm 
and standing with people who are trying to discover the truth. And to you guys, it doesn't seem that much right now, but in life, there's so many opportunities to compromise. And then ultimately your life becomes a compromise and you no longer stand for anything. So therefore, when you get to a moment like this, it was easy to talk about how we had to vote for Biden so Trump wouldn't be reelected. And of course, all of the propaganda, uh, all of the brainwashing, all of that, the media, social media, uh, the uh, nonprofit industrial complex, all of that was imposing upon the people a set of choices which were wrong. Biden would only mean war. And of course, Ukraine is a war that the Russians did not want. It is a war that the Biden administration wanted. I know that seems so counterintuitive, but it is the truth. It was provoked by them. It was they who refused to negotiate over Minsk, the Minsk agreement. What about the Donbass people? They refused for eight years. And in fact, armed the militias, the Nazi militias and, and, the, and the Ukraine army that were responsible for that war for eight years that killed upwards of 14,000 people, you know? And then not taking seriously what the Russians were saying. Are you just going to keep putting nuclear weapons on our borders where you can hit the Kremlin, the seat of government in a matter of minutes? And we're not supposed to have an existential interest in that. And so the Blinkens and Jake Sullivan's and, uh, and the rest of them treated Russia as though it was some kind of um, toy to be kicked around. And as Putin said, and Putin is absolutely right and he is so much more right than wrong. He is so much more right. And no statesman, let alone a head of state, could ever allow their country to be so threatened as Russia was becoming. You couldn't do it if you had any dignity. And so he said, you have a knife to our throats. Mm -hmm. We have backed up as far as we can. We can't back up any further. And give us, this is Putin, give us a negotiated way out of this. And the United States, the bully, and so on, didn't want to negotiate. No, we would not negotiate. And then they said to the Russians, openly and 
you know, in, in, in non-public discussions. If you move into Ukraine, we will sanction you to such an extent it will destroy your economy. It will, and, and they were saying this to Putin, it will destroy your presidency and it will create the conditions for what they call regime change in Russia, something they have wanted for almost tw over 20 years now. Regime change and a further balkanization or partitioning of Russia. You see what I'm saying? So, um, and then they said, look, and on top of that, we will mount a diplomatic offensive against you. And we will turn the whole world against you. And then on top of that, we control the major mechanisms of propaganda and information. We will completely isolate you. We will destroy your economy through sanctions and you might take over the Ukraine, which the United States was always ready to sacrifice the Ukraine for their larger ambition. But the price that you will pay will be so high that you will regret it. That's the US talking to the Russians. And you can see it now the way it's playing out. That was their game plan, you know? So it was Biden's war. It was Biden's war. And it was not a war that the, the Russians wanted by any stretch of the imagination. They did not want it. However, they prepared themselves for it. And you don't have to look far into Russian history to know and to understand that they fight war in ways that we in the United States could, ever, could never imagine. They have fought wars, uh, well, the Napoleonic War, World War I, and World War II on Russian soil. They know what it is to sacrifice for the nation. Patriotism for them is something we have no idea about. Um, and so they prepared. They prepared their people for whatever sacrifice they would have to make. Uh, they, Putin in speaking publicly to the Russian people spoke about uh, the history of Russia, the history of this multi, national state that emerged with the Russian Revolution. He expressed his differences with Lenin, said Lenin was wrong about the Ukraine and Stalin was right, not of opinion, you know. But he appealed to the great patriotic uh, uh, desire of the Russian people. The other thing, and, and you know, we talk about this all the time in the free school, the breakup of the Soviet Union, as Putin said, 
was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. Very important to understand that. If you've never been to the Soviet Union, uh, and I don't know about today's Russia, I haven't been there, but 27 million lost in World War II. But that wasn't the greatest catastrophe because they saved the state. You understand what I'm saying? The people were saved, even though 27 million died. Yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. But the greatest catastrophe was the collapse of the Soviet state. Isn't that interesting? We lost the state. And therefore, the great contribution of Putin in world history is to restore the state. Because without the state, the people will not survive. And that period from 1991, maybe to 2007, 2008, was pure hell for the Russian people. A precipitous decline in population. And this was not, you know, because it was a great famine or a great epidemic. A lot of these were deaths by people who were, who, who felt deeply depressed and had nowhere to go. In other words, suicides, alcoholism, drug overdoses. The life expectancy of a, of a Russian man went from something near 70 years to down to 55 years, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, we cannot imagine it. And thus, Putin and the, so the Russian people to have restored the state. Uh, the other example of this, by the way, is uh, North Korea, which I hope next week we consider. The, uh, Kim Il-sung and the reclaiming of the state. And I think just parenthetically, because events that are now taking place are going to make the reunification of the Korean Peninsula more possible. And you will have two states, but one people. But one state is far more far stronger in its ideological and cultural and civilizational uh, foundation. You know what I'm saying? But one thing, and I learned this from Anna, they speak Korean the way it should be spoken. I don't know if that's true, though. <laughs> I, you speak Korean. I don't know if you speak it the way it should be spoken. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I just say all of that to say, that the state of the Korean people undiminished by Western influence. But anyway, Putin saved the state. And you know, you got you got Westerners that don't like Russians at all. They see Russians as inferior to Western Europeans. Mm -hmm. They don't see them as quote, white. They see them as a mixture, the Slavs as a mixture of Asian 
and Northern European blood. They see um, the Slavic people as an inferior people. This was part of Hitler's <coughs> ideology. So I say all of that to say that this great, this great tragedy, this great catastrophe was overcome. Now, okay, let's just get to where we are now. I, I, I don't want to talk too much about that. But the thing is, they don't like Russians. They don't like, they hated the Russian Revolution. They hated that. They hate Lenin. Um, they, uh, people like uh, Victoria Nuland, you might not know that name, but she was one of the engineers and the bag woman in the coup d'etat of 2014 in the Ukraine. Um, uh, they don't like the whole Russian thing. They, you know, if you talk about Russian literature, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Chekhov, all of it, you know, oh, that's nothing compared to Western literature. Well, it, it's everything. Or you talk about Western, I mean, uh, Russian classical music, um, et cetera, on down the line. You know, what you, that's nothing, that's insignificant. But the West, with its sense of, of superiority, how dare Russia have a revolution that went against the West? How dare you do that? And I think in the not too distant future, we're going to see a lot of that animus also expressed towards China. Uh, we see it as it expresses itself towards Korea. Uh, you know, to be real about it, uh, these Western people don't like Koreans. They like Koreans if they could use you. Right. But for real, for real, they like Korea to be subordinate. But a united Korea? No. They will fight like hell to prevent that. But, okay, here's what I wanted to say. Uh, what we're seeing in Ukraine are four wars going on simultaneously. One, the military battle. Uh, two, the financial economic war. Three, the um, uh, uh, diplomatic war. And four, the information propaganda war. These are all going on simultaneously. The um, the, uh, um, the military part of the battle, uh, I think uh, Russia has pretty much won it. Their strategy of fighting this kind of war is, is, yeah, is, um, uh, is winning. Uh, and it's, it's the Russian way of fighting war. You know, they have this thing of encircling the enemy army and squeezing it. That's what they did in Stalingrad in World War II. That's what they did to Napoleon. I think, I don't know if they did it in World War I, but I know definitely World War II. They let the Nazi army 
come in and think they were winning. And before they knew it, they were in what the Russians called the cauldron. And then, you know, you uh, slowly cut them off, you know, from their supply system, from everything. And you, you give them the option of surrendering or being destroyed. Uh, this is, and so they have expanded in the East. The main war was in the East. Uh, the Western media never talked about the 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers right in the East on the borders with the Donbass, the two republics, the Donetsk and Luhansk republics, who were primarily Russian speakers, ethnic Russian. And uh, with the coup d'etat, what happened is that the, quote, new government outlawed the speaking of the Russian language. You know, so yeah, but you know that okay. Okay. Uh, maybe so. But to out yeah to outlaw you know if I out in in you know in Eastern Europe, it's something like the color line here, you know, uh, it's like if a government came to power and said, well, I'm going to outlaw you calling yourself an African American. Mm -hmm. You see, what I'm saying, I'm going to outlaw you singing the Black National Anthem. I'm going to outlaw you having black Christian churches. Mm -hmm. That's what it effectively meant, that you were saying that a part of the population had no rights to exist as a people as they had for many, many centuries. Mm -hmm. At that point, a conflict, which ultimately turned into an armed conflict because the U Ukrainian army, which was uh, in a lot of ways uh, infused with Nazi and racist ideology, went on a campaign to destroy any Russian resistance. 14,000 people were killed over the last eight years. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. An agreement was, was reached in 2015 called the Min Minsk Agreement, where the Russian speakers' rights would be protected. The Ukrainian government refused to enforce it. The West and the United States encouraged them. Which, and then they're at the same time, they're continuing to wage this war, this bloody war against these people in the East. Now, with Russia going in, because the West and the United States did not want to negotiate. And we have to understand this is not rhetoric. This is not hyperbole. This is real. This is the truth. The United States said that the price you will have to pay will be enormous. Mm -hmm. The Russians said, we cannot allow you to continue to, vi to violate the Minsk Agreement and then have 100,000 troops ready to go in and further decimate the Russian speakers in the east of the Ukraine. Nor were they prepared, the Russians, to allow the Ukraine to become de facto or in law, de facto, in fact, a member of NATO. They don't have to, you know, be a quote official member of NATO to be a part of NATO. 
you know? In other words, I'm shipping you all of these weapons and planes and missiles, you know, it's just like you and Nate. And then you have an army far larger than the armies of most NATO countries. The Ukrainian army is larger than the German army. It's larger than the army of Belgium or Norway or any of these countries, or, or even France for that matter. And, and so I would say, there is such a thing in international law as self-defense. There is such a thing in international law as the sec my security cannot be compromised under the guise of you protecting yourself. You can't do it that way. It's just like you know, uh, me saying, I'm going to arm myself with all kinds of uh, weapons and so on to protect myself against Serafina in the event that she, you know, one day gets a, a pistol. No, we have to have a mutuality. Our security is mutual. And so they wouldn't recognize it. So it's an act of self-defense. Now, uh, Jeremiah's going to talk about the, the financial sanctions. Uh, but I just want to read to you, because the, the oh, but by the way, the Russians are winning the war. It's only a matter of time. A friend of mine told me that the Ukrainian government is already in Poland. Uh, have you all heard that? Prime Minister moved away. I think nobody knows where he is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My friend told me that he is in uh, Poland and Warsaw, and that all of these press conferences that are supposed to be in um, in um, a capital of uh, uh, in Kiev are really in Warsaw, Poland. Well, we'll see. I'm not quite. I can't quite get my head around that. But if he's not already there, he, he'll be there soon. Um, uh, and so I, I won't go, go into all the military stuff, but it's, it's, that's a done deal. It was known that it was going to be a done deal. The other side of it is that this president of Ukraine keeps talking about a no-fly zone. Uh, and NATO, which is really the United States, has said no because that would be war with Russia. Well, if there were different politics in this country, they would consider it. The politics of this country are such that there is a deep division, and we've talked about this over and over again, and it is a positive political event because if you read it properly, it is a division between the neoliberal globalist war makers that present themselves as liberals and as feminists and as Black Lives Matter and everything else, good, pure, and beautiful. That side versus what is a mass of millions of Americans who are exhausted by war, 
do not trust the politicians and, and their arguments for more war and are in effect. Their basic instinct at the, in their gut are anti-war. I would go so far as to say that the anti-war sentiment in the, in the United States today is greater than it was during the anti-Vietnam War people. It is greater. The American people, however they think about it, and it's we're not doing social psychology right now. However, they conclude, come to the conclusion that they don't want war. The objective political fact is that the American people do not want war. And that is why the Biden administration keeps saying, we don't want to go to war with Russia. Because the American people would not accept it. And there would be rebellions in the street. There would be rebellions in the street. You know, and we, you know, we in the preschool had talked about the emergence of a more positive political environment. Remember all the, all the time. It's not what we're being told it is. You know, uh, we refuse to accept the 1619 project because all that was was saying that the masses of white people are by their very essence counter-revolutionary and fascist. You know what I'm saying? And you can't, well, well these people are anti-war. This is the base of a non-warfare position. Not yet fully evolved, not yet purely ideologically clear, but in their gut. They know that war is not going to mean anything positive for them. You know? Um, and of course, we're not in the business of putting people down anyway. You know, we want to find the positive essence, the human, the human striving, which is common to all people. Okay. So let me, so then on the diplomatic side, let me just repeat you something. This, I think you will find this very interesting because, you know, the United States has been uh, messing around at the, um, at the um, at the United Nations, this is part of the diplomatic struggle, uh, and you know um, the United Nations is um, how to describe it. I mean, it's hard to describe. I, you know, uh, sometimes I think that the United Nations is the home of the um, of demagogues, you know, and people who like to uh, stand up and give eloquent speeches uh, and, and appear to be morally, have the moral high ground. You know, to put it another way, a bunch of frauds and opportunists. Too often, not all the time. So the United States could bend various nations. And, and you know, of the 193 countries, many of them are very small countries, emerging countries, countries with weak economies, countries that have to rely upon Western financial institutions and on and on and on. So they can be compromised. The Security Council 
which is made up of five permanent members and 10 rotating members, uh, is, is the highest organ and it decides upon war and peace and that type of thing. So the United States first tries to go to the Security Council to get this anti-Russia resolution passed. Now, mind you, when the United States went into Iraq with shock and awe, the, um, uh, no one said that the Security Council should stop the United States from this genocidal war. In fact, it was the UN Security Council that voted for the war against Libya, a small nation of 6 million people bombed into oblivion. Then, okay, but, that, but now everybody is the moral high ground led by the United States, uh, the Biden administration. So, so they, huh? Yeah, we get to the left. Then, but then, um, they, um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, uh, they go to the Security Council. The resolution against Russia is vetoed by Russia, which they should have done. But then other countries on the Security Council uh, abstain which was literally a vote with Russia, was kind of a hedging thing, you know, uh, because this, this is a long drawn out struggle diplomatically. But anyway, China, India, um, and I forget the other countries that abstain, but certainly China and India on the Security Council, hugely significant. Uh, when does anyone remember China and India supporting the same thing in international uh, relations. You know, they and the West and the United States had done everything to widen the gap or, or split India from China. But then they go to security, I mean, the General Assembly. Now, the General Assembly does not have the power to decide war and peace and yada, yada, yada. But it's the, 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 the General Assembly, 193 countries, it's like a sense of the world. This is what the world is saying. So the United States wins the vote. Again, I say many weak countries, uh, et cetera, many countries that because of their situation cannot stand up to the West. However, five countries vote against the resolution that is with Russia and 35 countries abstain. I'd like to read, if you don't mind, the countries that abstain because we're beginning to see the emergence of what Du Bois talked about of a pan-Asia and the beginnings Slightly, and I was very surprised at this, the emergence of something that looks like a unity of a Pan-Africa with Pan-Asia. Let me, can I just read you the countries? This is a list of, first of all, let me read the countries that voted against it, five of them. Belarus, the DPRK, better known as North Korea, my people. <laughs> I'm so, <laughs> that government, 
They never disappoint. <laughs> they never disappoint you. <laughs> okay. Eritrea, which is an African nation, Russia and Syria. Five countries vote again. But here is uh, the backbreaker for the United States and the West. Abstaining. Armenia, small nation. Angola, a very important African nation in Southern Africa. Okay, here we go. Bangladesh <laughs> in the house. <laughs> Bolivia. I never hey. would have thought about that. Oh my God. Burundi. Burundi and Rwanda. You know Rwanda, but Burundi was also a German colony before World War One. You know? Burundi. China, of course. Congo. The large, the People's Democratic Republic of Congo, the largest and richest, minerally richest country in Africa and one of the richest in the world. Been beset by civil war and, and attempts to split off the eastern richest mineral part from the rest and so on. Of course, reliable Cuba, Central African Republic. Now this is really deep. El Salvador, Equatorial Guinea, another African country on what we call the Maghreb, right below the uh, Sahara Desert, those group of nations. Um, and this is what the United States came India. <laughs> now, India, they were so upset with India that they began openly uh, saying that now we have to impose sanctions on India. <laughs> well, you know, who the gods will destroy, they first make mad. Or as they say, drive crazy. That's crazy. Where did that come? Well, to, okay. okay. Iran. Okay. Iraq. So they ain't going with yeah, them. Right. To, quote, to quote Stevie Wonder, I ran and I rapped. <laughs> he got a song. I ran, I rapped. Okay. Kazakhstan, former Soviet Republic. Krajikistan, another former, you know, a Central Asian Republic. The Lao People's Democratic Republic. Laos in the house. Madagascar. Shout out. A huge island republic on the east coast of Africa in the Indian Ocean. Beautiful country, by the way. Mali, one of my favorite places. The first president was the great communist, Modiba Keita. He was overthrown. Mongolia, the Mongolian People's Republic, keeping it real. Mozambique, <laughs> Namibia, mm -hmm. I didn't know, and Namibia. Another former German colony. Another former German, German colony. Nicaragua, Pakistan, keep the Bengalis together. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India. It's beautiful, isn't it? That's a beautiful thing to see, isn't it? South Sudan. Yeah. 
Sri Lanka, yes. Sudan, yes. Brother Jerome Mohammed in the house. Yeah. <laughs> this surprised me to know. My Senegal. I never thought. Well, because their currency is the French franc. Literally. They are tied. I mean, the whole neo-colonialism of the former French colonies is unbelievable. And maybe it's not as strong as I, I thought. South Africa, Tajikistan, former Central Asian Republic of the Soviet Union. They keep saying, well, Putin wants to bring back the Soviet Union. Well, like they said, Putin has united NATO. Well, maybe y'all have united the former Soviet Republic. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> okay. Everybody got to do reconstruction. Well, that's what Uganda, <laughs> United Republic of Tanzania. Yeah. Okay. okay. That makes a difference. <laughs> of course, <laughs> Vietnam, yes. Zimbabwe. Okay. <laughs> then when you add to this, the DPRK, which is Asian, Eritrea, which, which is African, and Syria, which is Western Asia. Is that Ethiopia? Uh, no, Ethiopia didn't. See, that's the government. Yeah, but hold, let me just, yeah, Ethiopia didn't. And then, you know, I guess we would have to do another they, level of, um, of just, investigation. Did they just not vote, or did they just, did they vote? No, 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 they didn't, they, they probably did vote. Did they, did they vote for or against four, or against? Four, four. Four. And I, I can't say why at this point. I think I can get a sense. Yeah. No, Brazil. No, and Brazil. But Brazil abstained on the Security Council vote, but here they seem to have voted with the United States. But here we have it. To me, this is a smashing diplomatic defeat for the West and for the United States. And especially this pan-Asian um, situation. So um, what else could I say? I mean, just uh, now on the information propaganda side, uh, the United States is, is very well developed and positioned to wage this on a global scale. There's CNNs, there are other, and the way they get the uh, uh, the media of Germany and France and the, the BBC ain't worth a dime no more. I used to listen to it, it's not worth anything. But, so they have all of this powerful uh, mechanisms of propaganda and information. So they control that for the most part. But, so they're winning that war. I think they're losing the diplomatic war, especially Asia, which is the pivot that Russia will have to make. Uh, I'll just stop there. I'll turn it over to uh, my worthy colleague, <laughs> Jeremiah, or as I call him, Jerry Kim, who will. <laughs> I just call you Jerry. I mean, I don't know. It seems like I called Johan Joe, the famous rapper. <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead, Jer Jeremiah, he's going to help us to understand this, this whole, 
what these financial sanctions mean and, and what we're not being told. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, there is a series of articles that Docket shared, which uh, I had the chance to read and also listen to because one of them was a podcast interview. Um, and I think just to sort of reiterate what Doc was saying, I think in Western media, there is, again, this like admitting that what this whole, you know, crisis has um, basically like conveyed is the end of this era of neoliberal globalization in which you have um, the liberal assumption that because the economies of the world are integrated have become more integrated that basically that will guarantee like quote unquote peace and quote unquote harmony of course that's not actually peace or harmony because what it really means is that what the west can basically control all of the institutions of military economic um, political power and also can wage these wars um, without any accountability and unilaterally um, like libya like yugoslavia all of these places and um and so i think in the midst of that i think the biggest thing that's happened in the past couple like week or so has been um there's a lot of talk that uh amongst the sanctions that the west would uh prohibit russia from swift which is like a sort of international banking communication system and so that was a big thing they were floating but then um apparently the like i think last weekend or within the past week, uh, the biggest, basically the, the biggest bomb drop basically, which was um, the US and the EU sanctioning the central bank of Russia. And so th there's, a, there's been a lot of, basically the, I think the Biden administration has called this a nuclear option. This is the highest level of sanction they can do. Like they, basically they've exhausted all of their financial options. And um, what this means is that, um, so basically over the past couple, I think decades, Russia has been, in many other countries as well, like countries that have a trade surplus, like they have, um, they do more export than they do like import basically, and Russia is one of those countries. Um, what many countries have done, especially I think in the wake of the Asian financial crisis of the 90s was to basically um, establish these uh, foreign exchange currency reserves, which is basically like it, it's, a, it's intended to um, allow a government to offset uh, any potential inflation or any kind of internal shocks, basically, because you hold this currency in a foreign, like a foreign currency, such as the dollar, and the, the dollar, the US dollar is the main one, um, or the primary one. And um, so like, let's say if you have inflation in your country, then you can sell those currency reserves and then um, you know, like basically be able to offset the inflation in the country. And so um, basically Russia, along with many other countries had been, I think they have like $600 billion in foreign currency exchange. Um, and I think about 300 billion of that is like held outside of Russia. And so what this sanction um, is doing is basically making it so that Russia cannot um, do anything like the Russian central bank can't do anything with those like hundreds of billions of, of dollars in order to offset the inflation inside the country. And so the main goal, and again, like the one of the, the interviews that Doc shared was um, between Ezra Klein of the New York Times 
and Adam Coons, who is a, a professor at Columbia, I think, of economics. And um, yeah, I think before the Biden administration, the EU announced this, no one really thought that they would do this because um, they've done it against smaller countries like Iran, like Venezuela, obviously North Korea. Um, but there was never this sort of uh, belief that they would do this against basically like a G20 country, one of the major export countries of the world. Um, and especially because um, Russia is basically the main energy supplier of Europe. Um, and actually what's funny is that even in the midst of these sanctions, they haven't stopped the flow of energy into Europe. And so that's uh, from Russia. And so that's been one of the main ways that I think the Russian strategically, they know that because Europe is so dependent on them for oil and gas, um, that basically like, as long as they can keep trading that, that like they'll be okay. Um, as well as like their agricultural exports because both Russia and Ukraine are huge agricultural exporting countries. Um, but yeah, so basically like a, like a lot of like experts, they, they didn't think that the US would ever pull something like this um, just because Russia is such a big country. But um, basically I think what this is leading to is basically, um, I guess multiple things from the perspective of like sort of the news articles that have been published, one of which is that um, obviously the intention is, or not obviously, but the intention is basically to cause the Russian ruble to fall um, and for there to be hyperinflation and for the Russian government not to be able to do anything about the hyperinflation. And the goal with that is adopt the same regime change to spark a color revolution um, in Russia. And, um, but yeah, again, Russia's export, like main exports, like the sort of raw materials that like make Russia so um, have like economic growth and potential, like are not going to be affected, which is, I think, kind of the ironic thing that, you know, like actually Russia holds the upper hand in that sense because they can turn the taps off on Russia and on Europe anytime they want. Um, and so, yeah, Europe was very scared of ever doing anything to touch the actual like trade of energy. Um, coming from Russia. But yeah, I think the the two main things that it seems that are emerging as a result of this sort of acceleration of the, the West, like all out financial warfare against Russia is one, um, because so much of these, like these hundreds of billions of dollars of foreign exchange reserves are held um, in like the West, you know, I think some of it is held in China and China was the only major holder of Russia's foreign currency exchange that didn't, that basically, you know, they're not gonna sanction Russia. And so they can still trade um, with Russia in that sense. But um, yeah, that one, because there's so much of, yeah, like this currency exchange that Russia, Russia holds in the West mm -hmm. that um, like all of this is gonna come basically back to Western economies. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, mm -hmm. I think that's the one thing which like, I guess on a broader level, I feel like, you know, there's the, um, I think there, like, it is very true that, like, you know, the Biden administration has said, like, repeatedly, like, oh, we are not going to send troops into Ukraine, you know, and then I think they do that in order to appear also to their own public and to the West as, you know, we're the ones exercising restraint, right? And I think for many people, um, because like these sanctions are so convoluted and opaque, like I think many people see sanctions as the sort of nonviolent friendly option. You know, the moral 
you know, this kind of like morally justifiable option that the West can use, um, which basically is not like stop short of actual nuclear or like military conflict. But I think because of that, like basically the, the West, you know, this like huge move that Biden and like the EU made to sanction this, the Russian Central Bank, I think people are not really clear in the West about how this will come back to Western economies. One, how it's gonna cause even higher inflation. Um, I think they, they called it stagflation, where you're gonna have higher inflation, but also stagnation and a con contraction of certain industries, which are basically restricted because of the, the sanctions against Russia. Um, and that's gonna lead to a contraction, like the reversal of economic growth as well, because um, wages are basically gonna just spiral downward. Um, so there's that aspect of it, which I think like, because yeah, again, the sanctions are so opaque. I don't think people are really prepared for what the, the sort of nuclear option by the West is gonna do to Western economies and to like everyday people. Um, but then also you have the possibility of the emergence of, I think what some people have called like parallel uh, financial and economic systems, um, sort of on, like anchored by Russia, China, India potentially, um, in which you're seeing, I think I saw a news even this morning that China is um, very aggressively seeking to like lock down more gold, basically. Um, and I think I think you had you had texted this to me, but that um, a lot of this is also the culmination of um, the contradictions that were created when the the global financial system went off of gold as a as a global reserve um, and went to the U.S. dollar. Um, which basically allowed the U.S. to, as you can see here, they can basically do whatever they want um, without anybody, like any actual oversight or accountability from humanity. Um, and that has always been, I think, the, the sort of strategic aim behind it. But one of the really interesting articles that came out from the Wall Street Journal was basically does this move of freezing the, the sort of the foreign currency exchange reserves of Russia, which is like, again, like hundreds of billions of dollars. Does this move basically uh, break the idea of what money is? Because, you know, like money as this idea of a universal store of value, right? Um, in which like, if, if you think about it, like very simplistic terms, like if you have a lot of money in the bank, like that money is yours and you can do with it whatever you want. Um, and it doesn't, it's not supposed to have, I guess, an ideological content to it, but with what, with like this, this level of sanctions against Russia, it's calling into question, is money like ideologically neutral? Like, is it that basically if, if the U.S. decides politically that they don't like you, your, your money doesn't mean anything. You can't spend it at all. And I think that that has huge repercussions for like the global financial system, but especially many of the countries that voted to either uh, oppose or abstain from the UN resolution against Russia are countries that have also been targeted by sanctions. Um, and yeah, like the US has already done this to Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, mm -hmm. and um, also Afghanistan recently, they froze the entire um, foreign assets of the Afghanistan government when the Taliban came, came to power. 
I think like it was yeah like billions of dollars and now half of that basically the U.S. was like now it's ours. We're gonna send half of it to victims of 9/11. You know, like just insane stuff. But it's like it's like yeah like what does money mean if as supposedly a government holds like you know, what is trying to be a prudent economic policy of like trying to save money so that you can protect your economy from sort of these shocks, but actually that money is not up to you to decide whether it has value. Yeah. Just a small question. You know, under the modern rules of trade and investment, right. money is supposed to be neutral. Right. Uh, we know it's not a pure thing anyway, but money should be neutral. And that's why that Wall Street Journal article, by the way, can I just say, and you probably found this, I don't know whether you found this to be the case, you know, these articles on the financial situation speak in such opaque and unclear yes. language. It's almost like I'm speaking in a language that only Jeremiah can understand. And you, you, you know, part of the thing is just trying to understand. You know, they speak very cryptically. I'll put it that way. But the concept of money as a neutral store of value—that if a dollar buys. Uh, so many bushels of wheat, it should buy the same amount in Russia as in um, uh, Kansas or, or anywhere else where wheat is produced. Mm -hmm. But the United States, and this just my last point, the idea of the end of money, mm -hmm. which I don't accept by the way, we have to restore a world economy that is, you know, a world, but the end of money as a store of value means that money is now being determined by a power politics and ideology. I don't know if, if uh, you're, are you, you're, no, 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 you're not finished. Let them go and then we'll, we'll get to the question. I mean, the, that was a lot of what I had. I think um, the one thing is always interesting in the, particularly that New York Times interview with Ezra Klein was, um, you know, they, they did it two parts. One was before the West announced those like sanctions against the Russian Central Bank. One of them was after because that was such a huge move that no one anticipated. But um, part of the reasoning they gave was actually it touches on the ideological warfare component, which is the performance of Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, mm -hmm. and how, you know, because he's been so like so convincing on social media. And it is true, the Ukrainians are winning the war on Western social media, but that's not the actual war, but it is, you know, they're winning the war ideologically in the West on social media. Um, I, yeah, yeah, with the problem, like Western propaganda. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just, there's there's been a lot more investment in sort of propping up Zelensky, Zelensky basically as a kind of, you know, I guess it kind of follows the blueprint of like the Greta Thunberg type figure, mm -hmm. um, like this kind of celebrity, this instant celebrity who everyone knows. And now, you know, so it's supposed to rally the West into a common united front, basically. And so they basically gave Zelensky as the reason, part of the reason, you know, the quote unquote heroic resistance of the Ukrainian people as a reason why, you know, all of a sudden the West was so like their, their heartstrings were tugged to like want to unite together and to, like launch this like the most extreme version of economic warfare that is possible. Basically. So we'll kind of tag on to um, 
you know, what Jeremiah is saying. I, I think it's important um, uh, when we're looking at situations, uh, we can look at how it's playing out. I think it's important. I think it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's very important, but, you know, I think what's more important is how we got here. And I would say, you know, in a, in a word, history. You know, history. Kind of, I think that marks this kind of, you know. Um, and so I, I want to drop us into a moment that I had, that I had on Facebook. Um, and I don't know if Brian Jones is watching, um, but, you know, I, I like Brian Jones. I do. He's, 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 he's a strong man, but he's like, he's like, it's Putin. You know, Putin is the guy, you know, Putin, da, 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 you know, Putin is, you know, and I, I get it. I, I could, I could though, I could definitely, because we just talked about the propaganda, right? You know, I, I can, I, I can understand it because you know, various people in my life that you know have this liberal leaning, you know, and there's a lot of different factors involved. There's a lot of different factors involved, but we can look at kind of just the news, um, and uh, you know, so we had this kind of. Well, let me say kind of back and forth, but I had this, you know, this question of, uh, you know, well, well, okay, so it's it's all Putin. The Putin Putin is waging a war of aggression. You know what I mean? That sounds kind of like, you know, what they call well, they you know, we wasn't we okay. So now I'm confused. So that's just the moment. So that's how I kind of put that question out on, on the table. I think it's interesting. We can put it down as interesting. We write that down, and, you know, and say like, you know, okay, well. Interesting that you know we're, we're just talking like a couple months ago about Hunter Biden's I don't know something it's like kind of weird you know but uh, you know how that situation now now we're having now there's a war with Ukraine I I just, I just think that's kind of like an interesting kind of connection to make I mean it, it, it everybody I think should do their own research as to you know okay well what like why. Why did that happen like that? Why, why what was the historical connection there? Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I would say that, um, you know, I think it's important uh, that we, well, first of all, because it's easy to get kind of caught up. I mean, it's easy. I, I was looking, I was so, I was like, so, because I was like, what? Because I was so surprised that anybody supported uh, the Ukrainians. I was, the Biden administration. Yeah, no, yeah, no, but anybody supported said, okay, okay, I was okay, mm -hmm. say I like, you know, Ukrainians, you know, they're standing up for their right, you know, they're standing for mm -hmm. their rights. I'm like, what? How did y'all, how did this happen? You know what I mean? How, how did, you know, how did, how did we get to a place where it was like, oh, like it's the Ukrainians. And there's various, various uh, sources, even like literally the, the, the state media from Russia, Russia Today, you know, that, that has, I think very trustworthy documentaries. Mm -hmm. One of which actually is, you know, they they sent reporters just to they sent a guy with a camera, just and high quality to film uh, uh, the MAGA march, the million MAGA march. They have an hour long, and he's just walking through and he's just asking questions. Very important. So on that basis, you know, because there's not this editing, because there's not this this you know uh, manipulation. Uh, it's very easy. It's very easy to, or, 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 or it's very. It's, this, this is trustworthy, in, in terms of my, if I'm thinking, thinking through the problem. Okay. So, so I, so there's, you know, I didn't watch it naturally, but you know, the, the, the they have a documentary on Don Bass. They have, and they, there's various documentaries. We just, we did, you know, uh, Oliver Stone, very timely. You know, it was 2016, 2000, however, mm -hmm. and they were talking about Ukraine on fire. 
almost prophetic, you know, um, and, and now it's 2022, so six mm -hmm. years ago, you know, um, and so, it, it, you know, these, these things, it's interesting, you know, the role of, let's say, culture, you know, um, but I, I, you know, my main kind of takeaway from this situation, because um, there's different, there's different avenues in terms of, you know, because because me and Brian, we, you know, we're having this kind of back and forth. Like, you know, we're worried about the situation. Like, he was like, like next to his wife. He's like, my wife. You know, his, her mom is calling me. Like, you know, and I'm like, and he's like worried about thermonuclear warfare. Yeah. You know, and that's supporting the wrong people. Hold on, hold on, hold on. No, 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 hold on. Because that's no. Come on. Because that's I. I don't want to. I don't want to. Let's not put it like that. Because we can. We can. We can point the finger all day long. But let's let's kind of let's 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 hone in on what's what's happening before we say it's wrong, you know. Um, so I what I would say I would say to that, um, you know, you know, it's easy, especially because okay, so like, we can take it from Brian. Brian, we're thinking, look, look, even looking at it from Brian's perspective, even if you want to kind of put it like that, you know, Brian, you know, he they say liberal, da 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 da, got the coronavirus worried. Let's, we'll, call, we'll call this whole, the whole last two years, the coronavirus worry, you know, um, and we'll say that, uh, 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 you know, you know, this, 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 there's a national paranoia about it. Um, and I think, you know, it's easy to get, if you're literally just in the house and you're literally, you can like, literally like, like CNN plays all day long, like 24 seven, you could just leave that on and just, you know, um, that's, Let me call on Divya. Hold on, can I, can I finish my question? No, no, no. But make, finish your point, draw to a conclusion. I'm going to follow on Divya. Go ahead. Go ahead, Divya. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to, I mean, just to build on what Dave was saying. You know, it was very interesting to me. There's sleight of hand happening with history, mm -hmm. as it were, because we forget in this whole narrative. That so some of these groups in the Ukraine, they're nationalists. They're what some people say are neo-Nazis. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, we the West champions this whole story of you know, being the liberator of the Jews from the Nazis. And then we forget the invasion of Russia by the Nazis in the 1941. So what exactly is going on here? You know, this brief rewriting, um, attempt to rewrite anyway. I, I you know, we are discussing the plausibility and possibility of it is um, up in the air. But you know, we can't forget how it actually happened. I mean, there was technically the reason why the West was able to go in in the first place was because the Soviet Union defeated uh, And, you know, to kind of, uh, to kind of uh, run that back as well, you know, because... Before you go there, I just want, I don't want us to get off to this point. No, just, I'm not. Just, no, no, the thing of the, uh, uh, the financial sanction, mm -hmm. because I think one of the, uh, I just, and, and you could probably confirm this, People that study uh, financial markets and the financial system, this global, which 
hardly anybody understands. I think that comes out of all the articles. In fact, I think Jillian Tent, writing in the Financial Times, talked about it as the plumbing. You know, like and you, you get an old house, uh, it's just all different pipes uh, put together and nobody really understands the, completely what the plumbing is. Mm -hmm. But we do know if we turn on the water, we'll get water. But she she says, and she she literally, I think, implies or says that we hardly understand the financial plumbing undergirding the system, which means that people rushing to put all of these sanctions, especially as you say, on the central bank of Russia, one of and 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 like you said, a G20 country. In other words one of the 20th, 20 most important economies in the world. So now it's not like Venezuela in terms of consequences. So you guys, and, and that's, you guys are putting these sanctions. This is why Adam Tooze, uh, you guys look it up, it's a podcast. Uh, uh, what's his name, Klein? What's Klein? Ezra Klein. Ezra Klein. I mean, it's worth listening to. It's it's a little complex, you know, because the way they talk, you know, but they don't know what the in, unintended consequences of this are. We do know, and I think they they don't want to say it, but they, you know, they don't say everything publicly, but they do know that this strengthens the hand of Asia. Mm -hmm that China has its own sweat. You know, this thing, you know, it's, it, this sweat is a way to coordinate the banking activity of about 11,000 banks in the world. So uh, I can know what a bank in India did in terms of a bank in um, uh, uh, Vietnam. You know, so all of that is transparent. So it's not like there's anything that's not clear. So all of the banking activity in the world, and it's a way for a bank in the United States to pay the bank, the central bank of Russia for the US importing oil and natural gas or wheat from Russia. You see what I'm saying? It, so it's a way of making it a little more transparent. So now you go after Russia, how will that, what will be the ripple effects upon the rest of the global financial system? The other thing is, in other words, they're playing with fire. They're playing with fire and they're playing with shooting themselves in the foot but really the United States, the Europeans being so weak and so compliant might be hurt the most. That is the European Union might be hurt the most by this. Uh, yeah, so the unintended, and here we have, and this is why that UN vote and what it showed China and India and when had Pakistan and India agreed on very much at all? It has literally begun 
to bring together all of these nations in their own self-defense. Because if the United States can do this to Russia, who else would they do it to? Yeah, yeah. so I, that's all. Yeah. Uh, go, go ahead. Um. So I'm, I'm sitting here saying, on my practical level of life, I, I, I still keep a checking account. And I got some bookkeeping skills for decades. But when I'm looking at what happened in, in Cuba, the United States trying to manipulate the, all these different economies, you know, with this embargo, and then, then every decade, this embargo has been studied, not by our students, but other students studying from the socialist period. And, and they're technically looking at all these things and how these things interface. I, I use Pennsylvania as a, um, as my model for them because the depletion of what a state like ours, a super industrial, everybody carbon copy this kind of state from Pennsylvania with the railroads and everything, the insurances, and there's a lot of stuff that came from the Pennsylvania model for other economies. But but the economy that Russia is holding is on is a continental form of, of, of marketing, a continental form of what China, maybe China had a more ancient continental system because it's dealing with a lot of trade all the time. He cut this trade off over here. I was thinking about the Silk Road, but they have managed to build these underground networks because they understand how punishment of like, you don't have food, you don't have bread, you don't have water. There's a lot of things the economy, they want to rob the economy. This is the United States blank game because they if they rob every economy of nutrients like salt and they, they, they rob a continent of Africa for like spring water, not water that you just bottle, but no mining rights. You can't even tap for water underground. So you know, so all these things is rebounding on our on this country. It's going to put a wedge in our own statehood because we 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 won't have no integrity for for as we we rebuild for the um for understanding what colonialism just that's just the superficial man the market and financial colonialism. That kind of war, yeah. that kind of financial war against India, yeah. not to have India's lifestyle great. Why I always have economies in India do people thrive? They never was like a depleted historical country, you know, like in the 20th century with the 20th century make out India. And neither has Russia as those principalities in Russia, but Russia has to become a nucleus like the United States has become one to, to become a financial master of their lands and whatever they're doing. You, you're dealing with um, Russia's, um, not the chess masters, their masters in military science and engineering. You, you, we, you're up against a whirlwind here. You, can't, you cannot win this war. Can I just say here, I mean, just, I don't want to cut, but I just want to uh, highlight something you're saying. You know, after, colonial, after colonialism ended uh, throughout the world, you know, the, 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 the formal colonies adopted and accepted the world financial order. Yeah, yeah. They really did. Yeah, that's a, so much so. <laughs> you, that's the point. So much so. And they went in, into it with good faith, pretty much. You know, but the West 
constantly use the financial system to impose neo-colonialism through the franc, uh, through the dollar, uh, through the mark, you know what I'm saying? And you're absolutely right. Now, here's where the United States has gone crazy. They upped it. This is not, you know, uh, as you say, Russia is not Namibia. <laughs> Russia is not Cuba. Russia is not even the, the, the North Korea. Russia is a central trading nation network. and network. Yeah, network. Yes, within the global system. Yeah. And this is this is what all you know. Outside of all this propaganda and big willy talk, people that know that study the world economy and money and all that type of thing. They're saying the US is blowing up the global financial system. And the other thing, I don't know whether uh, Adam too said this, but that the option, the alternative is a global financial system organized around China and the Asian countries. This is what has happened. It, you know, it's, I mean, the reason I, I sound a little bit, uh, how could you say, um, hyped about it, because it is, it's, it's unbelievable. It is, un yeah, I'm sorry, go, go good, man. And, and you know, I don't want to use genocide as a light, as a light type talk, but for, for us to understand just kind of um, financial war of like, having nothing. They'd rather have people to have nothing. Like I might say, I might have an account, but they have made people come down to the level that you, you're not supposed to have any account of what we're doing. You're not supposed to keep no account. Like I can't live in the United States without keeping account of what I know about India. I, you can't break me with that. You can't break me about keeping my account of China. Yeah. Everything that we have is almost similar to a bank account. You can't bank on me for my account with what's going on, like this business that the Bidens and them decide to try to be the new headlight for something that's going that definitely was start it already went under. We just can't understand what those um situations and the depression that killed millions of people. And let, let me tell you something. I guess you read it, you talk with your Pennsylvania man. Yeah. You know, gas in Pennsylvania is now over four dollars a, a barrel, yeah. and the full effect of these crazy sanctions have not yet kicked in. We could be looking at six dollars a, a gallon and ten dollars a loaf for a loaf of bread. We can be, well, look, we, yeah. That's already the case in some places like we, California. We could, uh -huh, yes, we yes. could, we could actually, and not making no joke about this. We actually could go into rationing, but not the kind we went in before. Rationing. We was blind as a bat to the other rationing thing because we don't understand the financial world as well as the Russians, and we don't sure don't understand it as well as the Cubans. We got Cubans, they got Cuban mathematicians to have us all in full for the rest of our lives because they don't understand. We understand how to only buy a little piece of, of butter. These people had to learn how to make butter. We we just go and think that it just came out the store. They don't have no idea what even a cow, what kind of cow that Russia raised. They don't have no idea what's going on in outside of the students that's here. Because they're not, they're just thinking about the losses that they can account for, but they don't know 
all the wins that could be going down before. I don't say I want to see United States dead and gone, but it got to go. We got to revive. We got to revive ourselves that's as we see that's right. something that's definitely we can't blow no air into something that's going down. But it's already for me, it went under already. It's just we don't want to understand that the financial market they put on TV ain't the market that's in my pocket. So, and this is an example. Oh, I'm sorry. They did no, I was just saying. I think as to recall what you said when you were introducing this earlier. The masses of American people don't want board. They don't want freedom name change. And we're in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, this is a time for cooperation. And um, you know, Plato said something, which is no war in the name of peace and no peace in the name of war. Uh, so that's Plato. But I think that's very relevant yeah. to, it's like, if it's war, say it's war. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, 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 this is a, this is, there are two sides to this. Um, and it's, like it's asking a liar. they're asking somebody who lies and tell the truth. It's like, no, there is one force invading for the past. 10 years, no, 20 years. I mean, maybe since this, collapse, this, this whole thing is part of the global wars that have been happening in the Western Asia and moving up into the Eastern part of Europe, the Caucasus, yeah. the Caucasian mountains. Yeah. Um, and then the question of Caucasia. You know, I think we haven't really even started to explain the question of is Russia European? Or Asian, what is what what is Europe? You know, it's like that whole question. I think is really, and then what is the connection of something like America's American economy to the European economy? Europeans have their own ancient relationship with Asia and Africa. So now, Americans are supposedly self-sufficient in terms of gas. But we're dependent on China for so much of our manufacture. Now in this Swiss thing or whatever, just imagine with trade, like you know the balance of trade as they say. Like they're trading, and then you know you're pulling out of this gigantic economy in Russia, and then you know it's like we're already inflation is terrible, and energy crisis in Europe. But why? Europe and America have this relationship. Oh, because we're European. No, we don't No, that's not the reality of how America is right now. We are multi-ethnic, multilingual, uh, with family all over the world. Go ahead, Eddie. So I'm quite excited about this uh, sanctions, to be honest, because I, I have some optimism. I think short term, there's definitely uh, a lot of contraction. Uh, but the exports that uh, Russia have, given they're so valuable, I think people are going to try to find a way to get them because of the soaring prices and scarcity. And so uh, my two highest hopes is that uh, there will be a new uh, like infrastructure for like women's finance around so that uh, that uh, there can be trade with Russia which will uh, really undermine the dollar 
and uh, prevent other countries that other countries that have been prevented from engaging in uh, global trade uh, will be able to jump in because of this new infrastructure. I've, I've seen, uh, I've read articles about talking about like China being the new middleman since they don't have the bravery yeah, yet to, to uh, try to smite China. China will find a way to, as the middleman, to bring things into other places. Uh, and uh, second, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, I don't fully understand the Russian economy, but I understand that they're uh, a great a grain and petroleum exporter and they also have uh, industry. Uh, and so I think part, part of uh, part of the contraction might come with uh, possibility of more uh, uh, domestic uh, production for more like domestic needs. So like I, I, what I understand in China is that uh, they have built great uh, prosperity by uh, exporting a lot, but they also have like a very strong domestic market that uh, obviously they're better off when they're sending stuff all over the world, but you still have a uh, sound enough financial system and a, a strong enough economy to circulate plenty of goods and services within the country so that, you know, for example, like a country that's like fully dependent on tourism, if they don't get their money from somewhere else, they're destitute. They'll be able to, China will not be as well off if they're cut off, but they'll still be able to survive and reasonably live, have sustain a certain level of uh, quality of life. They yeah. the difference between us here is splinter. I call I'm I might I might say I'm part of a splinter of culture, but but China it's a material it's a, it's a non-materialistic, but it's more or less of a holistic culture that go back in time. Far back as you can go, you know, for everything, for, for, for most things. We can't make. We can't make a jacket. We can't even sew pair socks in. And all those things mean um, 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 I gotta be able to measure and weigh things. And what's happening in the United States, they don't deal with weights and measures because I you can throw a penny on the on the floor for me, but I can show you five different kinds of pennies and say they all don't weigh the same. We're supposed to have a penny that's supposed to have the same, I call atomic same weight, but we don't have a silver, we don't have a silver dime. We don't have any silver that we really circulate as far as what silver means in the real existence of a market. You know, I give, if I take a piece of silver, I take it to a silversmith, he gonna put, he gonna weigh it and tell me how much is that value of that silver, not what that dollar, that half a dollar that they just made out of any kind of material. You know, all this stuff is part of world weights and measures of me giving you what you're due. Even if it's even if it's one grain, how that one grain registers on a weight. And we don't even think about nothing like this. And 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 you know it's it's, it's, it's a shame for young people because I guess when I went to school, I used to do a lot of jumping. Just one for a second. I used to do a lot of jumping, but I would take something to the junkyard and the man had these one of these old scales. And he, I put what I had over there, right? And I told him, I said, you only gave me this amount for that. He said, I was that way. And everything, when I was joking, maybe eight or nine, that's how you would get paid if I was taking something. They don't know what jumping is. I, I recycled, <laughs> a place where they recycled something. But you need to know, you need to understand, you need to understand I, my our ethos here is dealing with how we used to have to handle junk. Somebody gave us something and we took their junk and made something out of it. But let me just say, we'll, we'll, we'll explain junking in a minute. Man. That was a way of, but anyway, on this thing of how the global economy, this is back to Eddie's point, 
this will change the global economy. Um, and um, and it's to me, it's not all negative. I, I agree with uh, you, Eddie, on that. In fact, I was saying to Serafina that in some ways I see a light at the end of this tunnel. You know, and I think that the Russians know how to manage an economy under siege. They've done it before. I mean, this yeah, their economy was like this a hundred years ago. They called it quote war communism when they were attacked by all sides yeah, in the civil war and sanctioned, and they had to set up a special kind of economy. A spec and I think they they might not have to go to that extreme today because there are these countries like India and China and Bangladesh and Pakistan. There's a, there's a whole new world out there that is not reliant upon the United States and the dollar. Go, go ahead. Um, I guess for me, one of the big questions is like, because in the West, a lot of the historical, um, I guess, analogies or ways of understanding this is they frame it as the emergence of a new era of great power conflict, basically between hearkening back to what led to the, the first world, like the world wars um, between like the European colonial powers, which I don't think is an actually true um, way of framing it. But I think the other interesting question is like, in what ways is this qualitatively and quantitatively different from the, the Cold War era in which you had the socialist bloc and the Western capitalist bloc? Because I think even, I think the first thing that comes to mind is I, like, despite the advances that especially the Soviets made in terms of industrializing, educating their population, like they were, and also because of the, you know, the, the, the Second World War and the devastation from that, they were economically at a disadvantage compared to the West. And that was always something that the West could hold over and say, look, our quality of life is so much better, like we have much more wealth, all this stuff. Um, and then also the relationship between Russia and China back then was, you know, obviously there was the Sino-Soviet split. Um, and I think part of that, I guess, was also a disagreement on like who was the enemy and like who was your friend. But I feel like today it's very different and I don't really know what to call it, I guess. <laughs> but one, you have like, especially Russia, China together, potentially Russia, India, China together, all of these countries, they're not at an economic disadvantage. If anything, they have a much stronger economic hand compared to the West, which is as, which is in a state of collapse. And also, I think even the partnership between Russia and China today is much more, in some ways, I guess you could call it more pragmatic, but I think what was interesting from that statement that Putin and Xi they released, I think a few weeks ago, was they view the US-led international order as the main obstacle or the main enemy, basically. And even if they have now different like ideologies, you know, Russia is not communist, Putin is not a communist. It's interesting because despite that, they have a more like they have a greater agreement on like what is the enemy and like um, basically what can we build in response to that. Um, so yeah, I don't know, just like the, the yeah, quantitative but also qualitative differences between this time, or what's emerging in this time versus the, the original Cold War, I think are, I feel like, yeah. Interesting. 
So uh, what what I what I kind of understood as uh, part of the moral force that the United States had at the time was all linked to their like capacity to provide a higher quality of life, which if I understood correctly, the United States after World War II, you know, they didn't have any war, they didn't have any fighting on the country, and they were also industrial. Uh, now the United States is is like not industrial, and it's not like they're gonna say, oh, we're gonna secure the European market, we'll buy our gas, buy our grain, buy buy our I don't know what I don't know what they want to sell. But like, yeah, given given that the United States is, is from from my understanding, more just like a strong financial market for like gambling and like uh, raising the value of, uh, of different assets, like the what 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 is keeping it going other than like I guess momentum and the, the financial market. So you do need capital uh, to be able to fund uh, development. Well, they I know one thing that you would, when they want to get. Some cheaper workers that run across Europe and some trickle game. They that's what their game is. They game that see those people running over that border. Well, that's the, the chances of them coming back going that direction. It becomes slimmer. The more they stay on this side of the of the fence and they think everything's okay, they just well you're going to meet Libyan people from Morocco. Everybody that's been pushed out of their homeland and 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 to, to go in some factory or somewhere they're going to put them in. Into that European um, menace of like you don't know where you're going there, but they leave in that they, they leave in the they leave in the land that's part of the socialist historical movement. Like, do you understand? You're not going to get no cheese on that side. They they because they just running across the line because of a financial talk. <laughs> but you're not going to have no wealth to make you a millionaire. Whatever that is that they didn't put into those people over there. In Ukraine, and even if you're a millionaire, you know what I'm saying. And, they, and, and it's, it's the dreadfulness is that we are here witnessing this kind of thing. Not just African Americans, everybody. Like, do, do we do we? Is we rallying for people to leave their homes because you didn't told them they can have casinos or whatever you told them? All this cheap, the, the cheapening of human life. You know, not just them. It, this could have been all the Africans that they just did like this. And Ukraine they didn't put them on TV like like you watch the man. All the all the states in Africa that people have been flushed out of their country because they want to um, share, have land sharing, you know, um, to have to, to share the land and to share the wealth together, and not be partitioned from out of your country. Because because once you leave, you out. If you if you, if you that's how you want to broker your existence, and, and that's horrific when we know. For a must be a student that the tail, the tail is already known. They y'all ain't gonna get no wealth right. out of this, out of this misery. Yeah, yeah. You could be on TV all week long, and it's it, it, it's more dreadful for us from our generation because because they might have told me that I would have been being out, but I, I must have woke up at four one and said I ain't going there, and I did say that. But I'm saying they 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 told us something like we like young people I know going to be not going for where we only gonna have like. Our own market and shit. We don't even own a car lot. This is black people doing the hyper business. But you, but you want us to say, "Wow, look what they're doing to the well." Yeah. They have done it to us. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's. Uh, can, can I just get back to one? Of, this is very important because this, you know, just what you said feeds into this great anti-war sentiment in the United States today. And uh, 
part of, uh, you know, everything, you know, everything is conspiring against the Biden administration and against the US ruling class, inflation. And as you point out, uh, as you point out, Jeremiah, uh, they're doing everything possible to screw up the financial system. And then as, as President Biden said in the State of the Union, the American people should get ready to pay a cost to uphold our values in the Ukraine. <laughs> and I don't think anybody is- uh, I don't know White House. Yeah, right, right, right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> are you prepared to pay $6 a gallon for gas to, to yeah, hold right. up the freedom fighters in the Ukraine? Okay, no. But, um, actually, um, I'm a walk. I'm gonna just walk. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> we live in the city too. But still, you know, the um, this thing of imperial overreach. You know, and don't forget, I don't think it was difficult to see that Biden represented as the quote anti-Trump candidate, when Trump was saying we're gonna pull out of NATO if he's elected again the second term. Biden is talking about let's build up NATO. Um, I, I, the point I wanted to make is so much of what the Biden administration stands for goes against basic sentiments of the American people politically. And basic uh, logic. Oh, so, and basic logic. Well, that's true um, too. You know, just I think the reasonable thing to do, you know, we see there's a move towards socialism in the U.S. Absolutely. You know, if we go to war, that be cut on social spending. Yeah. I mean, we have an aging population, a incoming, large incoming uh, young workforce with difficulty finding jobs, then all of the employment issues across the board in terms of race and you know, other factors, what, what are we doing? It's wow. let, me, let me call on Emil. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I would say it's a failure of the, uh, the Western state and the Western psyche to deal with its own contradictions. Um, I mean, um, I just think of, I mean, this makes me think of World War II history where there's the, you know, what the German state became under Hitler, believed that they could just run roughshod over all of Asia. They were less people, they were a lesser people who couldn't defend themselves really and didn't know how to do anything. So we could just easily run through them. Um, I feel like that mindset hasn't really changed very much. They thought that they could just introduce reforms within China and they would just roll over and take whatever America says will be what will be. Uh, and now what, what's going on in Russia, I mean, we say we support Ukraine, but of course that's a very, that's very one, one sect of Ukraine, right? The whole reason that this is an issue to begin with is because the Eastern part of Ukraine has risen up and has said, you're not gonna go another step yeah. east from here. Um, but yeah, I feel like this is how it's playing out in the economic realm. Like they are, like you said, shooting themselves in their own foot because they believe that you know, somehow they'll come out on top and everyone else will fold, uh, you know, and how the reason we're so wealthy uh, is because we're just good. We're more moral, we're more universal 
you know, our essence is, is universal. Everyone else's essence is just lower. <laughs> uh, it's the master mentality. Mm -hmm. It's it goes back to when this country formed and we had a civil war and, you know, some things were learned, other things were not quite learned. And I think that's part of the reason we're getting into discussion of Hegel is, well, we don't want to have a relationship with our own contradictions. We just want to believe we are morally superior. We are richer because we're just richer. And Afghanistan is just starving because they're just starving, not because we sanctioned them. And 20 million of them are on the brink of starvation. It's just because they're stupid. They were stupid to let us invade them. Um, this is the mindset. This is like that's how I, I think. Mm -hmm. And you know, they actually I was watching a little brief a snippet of French television. They were interviewing a French, half French, half Ukrainian woman, mm -hmm. and she went totally off the script. She was like, "No, I mean, we don't we don't support the West. We don't support, like they've mm -hmm. taken over our government. Much of us uh, uh, question the legitimacy of that last election to begin with, mm -hmm. and they've outlawed much of our culture. Why on earth would we support this?" Mm -hmm. And made a lot of the anchors very uncomfortable. But this is a reality. When you have to face actual people, you know, there's a, you know, there's a real tension here. It's not uh, just you are above. So. Let me, let me call on Emily. Emily well, I just want to bring in some comments because a lot of them um, are contributing to also the conversation we had earlier about inflation and the financial impact. Um, but Veronica Ancrum confirms that it's almost seven dollars a gallon of gas in California, Ooh. which is a big story. Um, and then also, um, Daniel Eisenberg brings up he's adding interesting points about money, the nature of money, and also what it means. This is a question Julia just brought up too, which is like about the trend towards socialism. Um, but he says uh, money, its concept, is to be universal. Everything can be given a price. But money expresses both exchange value but also capital. There is quali quality quantity dialectic. A certain sum of money transforms into capital, crosses the minimum threshold that it can count as an investment. Money as money versus money as capital. This is why we have inflation right now. Printing money is not what creates money, but rather investments. Fixed capital pulls on energy, raw materials, etc., while stagnating wages. Um, it is this problem that gives rise to political interventions as states try to manage this crisis, tariffs, quotas, because capital is social production. It is legally mediated at a national level, but at the productive level, capital is social property beyond the sovereignty of a nation compared to the U.S. society. Um, and he also says the question about U.S. reserves is not that straightforward as one of hegemony or expressing political decline because various countries such as China buy up US reserves in order to skew the exchange rate so that their exports are cheaper. That is part of various countries' growth strategies. Weak versus weak and strong currencies are unfortunately words that politicians play on. The US could benefit from this now because of inflation. And thus, because of what? Inflation. Because of inflation. And thus would import more to help attenuate inflation costs. Um, and then um, he also adds in, the key is to see how this whole system points towards the possibility for socialism. And then he quotes um, Lenin, I believe, quote, capitalism has created an accounting apparatus in the shape of the banks, syndicates, postal service, consumer societies, and office employees unions. Without big banks, socialism would be impossible. The big banks are 
the state apparatus which we need to bring about socialism, in which we take ready-made from capitalism. Our task here is merely to lop off what capitalistically mutilates the excellent apparatus, to make it even bigger, even more democratic, even more competitive. Quantity will be transformed into quality. A single state bank, the biggest of the big, with branches in every rural district, in every factory will constitute as much as nine tenths of the socialist apparatus. This will be countrywide bookkeeping, countrywide accounting of the production and distribution of goods. This will be, so to speak, something in the nature of the skeleton of social society. Um, and then earlier, actually, there was a really like long um, conversation um, when you were first giving your introduction talk about, like many people were discussing what we mean by freedom. You know, because I have to go, it goes back to Dick, what Dick was saying with Brian Jones. Like, there's a conversation of like different people's views of freedom. Like, it does go back to certain definitions. What do we mean by democracy? What do we mean by freedom? Um, and then also, like, similar to our conversation with Hegel, is there such thing as the truth? Like, what such is the thing as what? The truth. The truth. The truth. I'm sorry. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of comments, and I'll just. Highlight some, but Sadia Durant talks about saying freedom. Um, she says, freedom is not a gift we are given by our country. It's a human right that has been constantly attacked by the US political leadership. Yeah, yeah. We shouldn't give credit to be created by that definition of the US. That's, that's, that's a Malcolm um, and uh, Phillips made some other point because. Um, you know, they, they, you know, the charge was genocide twice, you know, over and over again, you know, um, to the UN, you know, um, Paul Rubens in charge, I don't know what happened, you know, but, um, you know, freedom is a human right. I mean, there's, you know, you're talking about human right violations. And then Yvonne um, adds in a clarification about the UN voting. She says, general assembly resolutions are not legally binding on member states. But Security Council resolutions are. Absolutely, that's right. Or action, when we say they're actionable. In other words, Security Council resolutions can lead to action. General Assembly resolutions do not lead to action. Mm -hmm. You know, it, the General Assembly. That was a General Assembly vote. Yeah, it's like just the sense of the, the whole body. But it's not actionable. It doesn't lead to action. Are there any other? Um, no, not any others. If people want to check out the conversation about freedom, they, they can look at. Okay. Well, folks. Oh, go go ahead, Pulito. Um, this conversation about economic sanctions sort of replace, replacing direct military intervention. In, in something like the war in Ukraine right now. It remind, it, it's reminding me of Kwame uh, and Kuma's uh, thesis on neocolonialism being the, well, the last and most dangerous stage of imperialism and how it's like a noose around the countries that themselves practice it because, you know, because of the, like, Bef uh, before the 20th century, maybe it would have been possible for these powers to uh, sort of circumvent the contradictions of neocolonialism by going back directly to, you know, colonialism, just reverting back. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. 
after the 20th century, after the great wars and the establishment of the Soviet Union, this was no longer possible. We could never go back. And this is, I think, a similar kind of analysis can be applied to, you know, this uh, this practice of sanctioning and blockading uh, governments, which basically have an alternative ideology to, to you know, this, this US mm -hmm. uh, hegemonic, uh, I, I don't even know how to, how to put it, but basically, you know, uh, you know, it's an alternative model of governance, but it seems like uh, this uh, economic sanction seems to be like the last stage of imperialist war. This, this is this came up oh, that's so um, interesting. Could you just say that once again? I was saying that the, I'm still trying to work through it. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm saying that this policy of sanctioning and blockading seems to be the last and also very dangerous stage of imperialist war, um, which at some point, again, some point in the past, maybe you could have, you know, circumvented the contradictions it brings at home in vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, inflation and austerity and poor living conditions. Uh, you could have circumvented that contradiction by directly going back to war, military engagement. But like you were saying that we might have reached a time when this is no longer possible. Um, but we, like, you know, the American people uh, will not accept it. Uh, people of any country in the West that tries to go to war um, might not accept it. Yeah, so I, I was just thinking that this, like this is also a news around the necks of the people who are practicing this policy of sanctions. I mean, it is war because you're basically starving people to death, um, but it just lets you have this moral high ground. It lets you have take this uh, moral high ground that, oh, you know, we're not, we're not really going to war. But it is war. It is. Yes. Yeah. I just want to know if Jerry, Jeremiah wants to, or anybody, something uh, very, uh, and what um, what Portable was saying, I think it's worth um, you know, just spending a little bit of time on. Um, if I could just, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very intrigued by it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Could this, let me put it in my own and tell me if this fits with what you're saying, Portable. Because there is desperation in this. I think you would agree, Jeremiah, that these policies of sanctioning a central bank of one of the largest economies in the world uh, without, any not, without any forethought of what the consequences are, not just for that country, but for your own country and for other countries that are so-called your allies, pardon me. And, and, and I think that's one of the conclusions that we could draw from those essays, that this is dangerous territory and we don't know what the consequences of this will be. I mean, okay, you can embargo and sanction Cuba or Venezuela. It's not gonna affect this country that much, but uh, 
the other thing is they underestimated, and this is what the Derek was saying, they, and, and uh, Eddie, they underestimated the size and diversity and, and so on of the Russian economy. And, and uh, well, well, we'll get back to the ruble in a minute, but this is not as John McCain, so-called Senator said, a gas station posing as a nation. This is a very developed economy uh, with, with industry and everything and agriculture and gas and oil. Uh, so it's a very complicated economy and you don't just sanction its central bank without some forethought of how that, what the blowback on your own economy would be. But then I think what you're saying, Cordoba, is that the fact that they don't have many options, the option of war is less available, physical war, shooting war is less available. One, because of the polit domestic politics of the people here, but also because the consequences of that are so obvious that they would hesitate. But the other thing is to go to this extreme might represent a new stage of the crisis of Western imperialism. Is that, I mean, go ahead. Okay. I'm, I'm, I was thinking about the, um, the book and the Nkrumah book. I have been, you know, I've always write my briefs in it and a lot of it, but I write my briefs and books. But the thing about we don't think that it's the end of this stage and we haven't been able to have a chance like to live through something for a minute. It means to live, have some space through how you live. People, we don't know what the phenomenon, like Hegel's book, we don't know what it's going to catapult or happen to confound this country for setting up all these different stages of problems and no acknowledgement that we got a problem in this country. Mm -hmm. And then we don't, we only want to acknowledge that as no acknowledgement. So that's a financial thing with that. I'm a, we come from the other generation where we, we're, we're linked to all the generations sitting in this room here. This, the bottleneck of, of the finances, that's breathtaking because people can't can't handle, it's not just going to the gas point and pay for gas. It's everything that you get, oh my God, you in this line to get some gas. You looking at that sign say four or something, your mind is going like this, get out of here. I remember gas was 89 cents. And I was still driving a little bit back then. But this all affects everything when you say, what's the, what's the last stages? of this kind of capitalist um, day arrangement for only the few to have wealth. The, the multitude, we're in a state of, why they used to call the somebody the sick people of America, now the sick man of some other country that they yeah, were labeled. Sick man they were labeled somebody else. I'm not even gonna go there with, with that, but that's the same thing that they were suggesting that we're going through a page that the whole country is under a certain sickness and capitalism is a, is a form of, it could be a disease almost because we can't manage it. There's no, it was never intended to be a manageable thing. Either people have confirmed it with it to, to, to keep their existence alive, but not to take other people's existence for granted. That's the whole socialist war that's going on, whether we're going to let them dominate 
can we have a loaf of bread or should we build a bank loaf? So we, we, we have all these things as a plague almost that we don't do, we have to do something. Nkrumah book is not playing around. He is not playing around. You know, because it's, it's an examination. No, I mean, I just wanted to agree that um, it is a sign of desperation because part of the reason why no one really predicted that the US and the EU would do this is because they have no other financial options left. This is it. Like, this is the. This is it. Yeah, they threw the whole, as they say, like the kitchen sink or whatever yeah. um, at Russia. And I think. You know, all of the all of the news articles in the West are kind of drastically turning out these articles are like, can the Russian economy survive? Like, because you know, the whole the stated intent is to strangle the Russian economy, you know, in the way they've strangled many other many other countries, whether it's through sanctions or austerity, the Washington consensus, all that. Um, but I think the real question is can the West survive? This, can I just underline just so you see the question? And this is the question. I think it comes out in some of these essays from the Financial Times. You know, you know, everybody says, well, the US economy can survive some of the blowback from this because of its strength, maybe. But definitely the European economy is going to be almost decimated by this. And yeah, go, go, let me just let me just ask, just and then I'll come to you, Divya. Um, could you just just go a bit further, if you don't mind, Jeremiah? Well, I mean, I feel like that that is a good point because I guess in the post, like the post World War II era, it was the U.S. that you know, quote unquote, saved Europe with uh, what was it called, the Marshall Plan, yes. right? And um, you know, that was the sign of, you know, Western solidarity, the U.S. basically taking up the torch of saving Western civilization. But if Europe, if like, if all of these European economies in the EU were to go into free fall, like one, the U.S. I don't think could even like factually save, save Europe, but also none of the American people would go along with it. Um, and yeah, I think it is it is true there is a lack of um, foresight because yeah, it, I think they they realize they run out of run out of options, but they also have to portray, you know, project strength as well. And actually, yeah, the um, the State of the Union was interesting because they had more Ukrainian flags in the State of the Union than American flags. And Biden spent the entire like first half talking about Ukraine. And I mean it is kind of like the sort of actual manifestation of like imperialism exporting its contradictions um trying to make people not actually see what's going on um but yeah like i think there is a feeling of like yeah a feeling of like desperation and they don't really have any options left i uh, i i don't think you know i i don't think it's ever these kind, like you'd say, about these contradictions, um, how it is intensifying the domestic contradictions in this country. Uh, you know, like the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics came out and said in January, uh, 
600 and some thousand jobs were added to the labor force. But then on the other hand, you know, I think this coming week, the, uh, the consumer price index will come out showing almost historic levels of inflation. So a person is working, but the, the dollar is worth huh? three, jobs. Yeah, three jobs, working three, yeah, right, three jobs, but the she or he is not making as much as they were before this inflation. I th and then, you know, by the way, I just want to say this, you know, we're always talking about inflation is inflating the money supply, but there are also political shocks that produce inflation. So you get all of this at the same time. We just don't know how it's going to play out in the economy. Now there is this thing called stagflation where the economy stagnates and there's inflation at the same time. And there is, yes, and there is some prediction that we're entering that. In other words, a recession and inflation. Usually they, you know, inflation and recession move in opposite direction. When the economy goes into recession, prices come down. You know, it's only, you know, so now, but then you're gonna have the two happening at the same time, which means you're going to devastate working people and small business people, destroy them. And, but go, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead, Tiffany. I just wanna, yeah. To an extent, I agree with the analysis of policy, mm -hmm. but I think this crisis is beyond policy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so while it's valuable to analyze market forces and currency exchange value and things like that, mm -hmm. you know, you just look at the human interest as mm -hmm. well. Like what the question for me is not, oh, will we save Europe? It's who's going to save America? Well, yeah. see that, that, can we even save another right. country, the situation that's that right. we're in? Yeah. Because we can't even look after our own people. This okay, is, so like... This is the crisis right now. So it's like, what are we doing with, like, we can't save anybody. We have to focus on our own problems. And it's it's the question of, well, reason. I mean, like, we have all this wealth, supposedly. But we really, like, when you talk to people sometimes in other countries, like, oh, you're rich. No, the masses of American people are spiraling downward and they're not ready psychologically for any kind of, I mean, people are burned out at work. You know, they're working three jobs, even if they work one job, they're like, what on earth is this? Trying to just navigate just life. No, 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 that's what I wanted to say. It's like, we can't save anyone, let alone ourselves. So it's like, what is this nonsense? in terms of like uh, saving yourself, you know, in terms of, you know, yeah, I mean, I just meant a national level. No, 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 no,
at a time, um, you know, when things are can hit a fever pitch like that, you know, one one wrong move and somebody's bang, 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 and somebody's dead like that. You know what I mean? Um, and so it's important. Um, you know, I mean, people, I mean, you'd be surprised, but I think that we're at a, a, a point in um, terms of uh, political development, you know, where if we can, if we can handle uh, the situation, um, you know, and we can get organized plans ahead, it, you know, the, in, in, in that way, we can, in, just starting with ourselves, you know, dealing with ourselves as well would put it, you know, it, uh, you know, I, I, I have a sort of, uh, you know, I'm like Sarah, and I have a sort of self-confidence, you know, about, about um, the direction uh, as to where things are headed um, because we have incredible foundations. Um, and I, I, you know, that's, that ties back into history. Um, but, you know, going back to the thinkers, uh, American uh, philosophical thinkers from, you know, you could, you could say Jefferson or you could say um, uh, the Washington or, you know, there's Christmas Addicts. You know, this, these were the, this is at, the, at the beginning. Um, there's also, you know, thinkers, you know, over the course of time, you know, Du Bois laid out uh, Black Reconstruction or, you know, in World in Africa. That there, there are there's these these incredible foundations um, that we have um, to springboard off of, just in terms of thinkers, you know. And and there's also like what what how it is that we, you know, came to this point, how we um, uh, sur learned, survived, you know, as you want to kind of talk about, you know. Um, and I think it's important um, to especially. Uh, you know, to kind of think about how, you know, that question, because, you know, it can, like, like anybody's susceptible. Mm -hmm. Anybody's, like I was talking about to er earlier, Brian Jones, I don't think he, I don't think it's a sickness, mm -hmm. but I think anybody can, that's the conditions. Mm -hmm. You know, if you mm -hmm. put somebody in a room with a TV, now you're yeah. talking about Stockholm syndrome, you know what I mean? So you just <laughs> write like that too, you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, it's, it's, that's why it's, it's important. It's important to uh, learn from one's own experience, to learn from other people's experiences, and, but also to learn from history, which is, a, which is man's experience. You know, uh, and the, uh, I'm sorry, I had to go to the bathroom, but you know, um, I, I think it's you, your methodology is very useful, mm -hmm. very useful. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a way of understanding mm -hmm. our people. Mm -hmm. You took the one individual whom I know and know for a long time <laughs> and is a friend, you yeah. know what I'm people, saying? People. Uh, you took one individual as an example mm -hmm. to discuss a social phenomenon. Mm -hmm. This is very, very valuable. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times you get people that want to talk about the political crisis and all of this, but they can't point to one living human being. <laughs> it was very valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, even the idea of it. You know, oh, I mean, the idea of like how, or like, it's like, it's like, uh, it's kind of like planting, or I know you got planting, or it's kind of like, um, uh, like, you know, you, you ever see like on those documentaries? 
you know, you have the like the the germs, like in the Nova documentaries, me and Sarah used to so watch that one. And uh, you know, uh, uh, they have a little like container uh, of uh, germs, and I feel like you know it. It's 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 interesting the word culture if you think about it. You know, um, culture is the development of uh, you know like of the kind of the germ so to speak. You know, it's also living forces. But I want to say in terms of the word the music, like music or culture or you know, your methodology. But your methodology, if I could just highlight it, because you know the reason I want to is because I know. Myself, I'm guilty of losing a sense, you know, impatience with people, ordinary people. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, but the fact of the matter is that we're all a result of our personal histories, but as you put it, the history of man himself. And now, that's right. And how do people think in a moment like this? where we might be changing epochs. I don't think it's that simple as, you know, where it's like, okay, there's this moment and this moment. Right, right. I think it's kind of like a turning of Absolutely. a wheel. You know? yeah. I, I agree. Like a water wheel, you know what I mean? Right. Exactly. Because, you know, what we're, what, what, if it's static, right? If it's, you know, his, if, okay, this historical moment, this historical moment, it loses the, the, the moving elements of history. Which Absolutely right. And see, this is why we're studying Hegel, precisely to help us to understand that none of this is just an instant change. Or we, I agree with you three hundred percent. But you know, just as though we could. But all of this is about the change of humanity, the change of people. And when you use the one individual to talk about things that are much larger. I think that is a very valuable approach. Uh, and I can't really approach. think, I'm sorry, I, mean, I, mean, I just, you know, cause the last, one of the last things um, before I, you know, a lot of things kind of happened in, in my life last couple months, uh, when I was working at, you know, this place, uh, the, one of the last things that I, I had read at the time was, um, I, and I would suggest it, to the, to the preschool or whoever, you know, um, is Baldwin's uh, evidence of things not seen. Yeah. Now I hadn't, see, I, for whatever reason, I hadn't read that one. That was the one that I had missed, you know? And it's interesting, cause it's just like, I don't know why, cause I, see, I remember looking at it, but then it was something. It's his last book. It's his last book. And, and he wrote it in 87? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and so I think what's interesting about that is, you know, it's not only the idea, but it's the, you know, that how he's capturing history, how he's capturing the ideas, history, and all these things in this one case. It is, there's this case of, 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 a, of a, a quote serial killer, and the, the state kind of puts everything on him. Right. Right. And, you know, but what was interesting about in terms of if it was like a picture in my mind, it's, it seemed like Baldwin, like, I was like, well, where's this coming from, Baldwin? I seem, it seemed like it just spiraled and spiraled and spiraled. Oh, that's civilization right now. <laughs> We're spiraling out of control, is what Baldwin was saying. And so I think, it, you know, it's, it's poignant, you know, what he had, what he achieved with that book. And I think um, it's, it's worth, you know, uh, in, an investigation.
This is so interesting. Again, I'm I'm so moved by your methodology, mm -hmm. the use of the allegorical, mm -hmm. you know, to talk about civilization. And, uh, you know, if I might say, you know, oh, oh, uh, oh woman, let me just, uh, this, this one, on Jake, because this, you know, if I might say, um, all of this, as you put it, is on the table now. Everything is on the table. Yeah, right. it, it should have support this. Uh, yeah. Well, you write about that. You're, but now it you can't avoid it. Yeah. Let, let, let me let me just call on Doe. I uh, just want to add on to what Jason's saying, but by bringing up, I think a question that came up a couple of weeks ago, actually the question of like how to deal with subjectivity and objectivity, which I think relates to the kind of methodology that is going to adopt Jake, but um. I don't know if this is like a apt or accurate summary, but you know, a person represents a certain subjective experience, but to be able to see that person or that singular experience within a much broader, I guess, objective frame, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, that was how I was trying to process mm -hmm. that question that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if that but Bill, could you uh, kind of remind us of what that conversation was? I remember the objective subjective thing, but what what was the context that we were discussing it in? Um, I think it was in response to something within the Hegel mm -hmm. um, chapter. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Dave was speaking to, I think, actually your friend. Um, right, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't I don't remember if there was actually resolution in the I think the question of subjectivity and objectivity. So is dialectical logic like the hypothetical subjective logic or subjective logic? Let me speak a little speak up a little bit and a little more. I, mean, because I feel like part of the conversation of subjectivity and objectivity was also when we were like that week was really helpful because we were parsing out Hume versus the German philosophers like Kant and Hegel. Um, where both Kant and Hegel believe in the idea of metaphysics, where yeah. like based and I feel like metaphysics is now it's true, but but isn't metaphysics essentially like there is such thing as truth? Like before something comes, before you encounter something, <laughs> it exists. It's very important, you know, both of these questions. I mean, now we're going into philosophy, which is not unconnected to this overall understanding of the crisis. And, you know, again, when Hegel talks about philosophy as a science of sciences, what he's saying is that philosophy is a way of explaining the other sciences and the findings of those science sciences. And that is what we are trying to do here. We're trying to find, uh, I'll use this language, higher order explanation of what is going on rather than just opinion. To drop the lot on us, uh, uh, Jacob. <laughs> but uh, 
So indeed, the question of objectivity and subjectivity, let me kind of put that in words that I think would help explain it. The objective reality of social phenomenon, be they economic or social crises of war, is those things that are the result of human behavior, of human action, of collective action, and so on. In other words, they become um, <coughs> part of the objective world. You see, now, albeit they're human. In other words, this crisis is the result of human behavior, human decisions, and all of that. But they take on an objectivity once they happen. Does that make sense, Doug? The subject is, okay, one part, in one sense, the subject is the agent attempt, the person's attempting to understand and explain all of that. Okay? Just like Jeremiah was talking about the, um, the fin global financial system. Well, we know this is the result of human action in the past and right now, right? But as events, as phenomena, they take on an objectivity. You know, they're no longer just the result of humans doing things, although they are that, but they're not any longer just the subject. They are objective. They are things that have happened. When they occur. You're yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's what I'm trying to get at. Subjectivity is, is really our effort and attempts to explain okay. all of that these experiences, these decisions, these wars, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The subject. Now, <laughs> this, is, this is why it has to be done dialectically because there is no uh, total separation between them. In other words, even as we try to explain these events, we are implicated in them. We're part of that. Well, but that was given when we stepped on this planet Earth. Well, yeah, but see. That, that's, that was but, what but was talking see, about. Moral, see, let's moral, take the science of economics. The science of economics would attempt to explain what uh, Jeremiah is talking about, right? That's the science of economics, you know? Now, what Hegel would say is the science of economics is a specific science looking at uh, well, let's just say for a second, economic relations between people in a society and part of the society in a global scale, whatever, okay? Hegel would say that the economists can present us with all kinds of information and data about the economy. That's what Jeremiah presented in these articles. And one thing about these are all economists, economic and financial journalists, they know 
the system far better than any of us in this room will ever know it. But when you read it, you, you realize that there's a whole lot that they do not understand. Hegel would say that philosophy provides methods of knowing, as I put it before, thinking on a higher level and therefore seeing these relationships dialectically, unities of opposites, negation of negation, that even as, and this is what Portable was getting at, even as they act, that is the players, the major players in the financial system, they're also negating what preceded them. You see what I'm saying? Objective is matter for Hegel. No, 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 no. Hold on one minute. Hold it, y'all. Hold it, y'all. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, we're not here. Now, we're not talking about natural phenomena. We're talking about social phenomena, which are far more complicated for us because while there's an objectivity there, events that have happened, decisions that have been made, there is also a subjectivity. Us, we, we who are both, uh, uh, you know, the quote victims, we, we will have to experience the, the consequences of other people's decision, but, and here is philosophy, here is social theory, and, um, and, and here's your question about metaphysics, uh, Emily. What we are doing here is attempting to explain this these financial decisions and actions at a higher level. In other words, to understand them as more consequential than just financial decisions. You see what I'm saying? But also attempting to understand them in movement, in motion. Now, we ain't got it yet. It's more difficult and complicated to do than just understanding what should be done. You see what I'm saying? But we, hold women do. We are aware, however, and this is why going around here, different methodology, portables, you know, bringing in Nkuma, um, uh, Jacob, bringing in um, uh, Baldwin, allegorical uh, thinking. Uh, if if we if we uh, so you don't wait, hold, hold. So you don't understand what I'm saying? No, I think I just want to just I guess try to regurgitate what I'm saying. Yeah, I think taking the example was like of Jeremiah's you know explanation of the financial system, and there is like this objective objectivity of yes. things that have happened. Yes. Um, I don't know one example of things that have happened. <laughs> no, 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 just take the sanctions. Yeah, that, that happened. Okay. Or the right? financial system. Right. I, that is. That exists. Yes. Yeah, that's right. It's <laughs> but, yeah. but like 
the articles and the research that Jeremiah did, like that is all a subjective interpretation Absolutely. that we are trying yes. to yes. maybe divorce from objectivity and bring it into a higher understanding. No, 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 no. Let me just say, yes, the articles that he reported on are very sophisticated analysts of the financial system and uh, financial journals. Very sophisticated people. They know more than we do about the financial system, right? However, what we are attempting to do is uh, not just draw conclusions, but explain what they're talking about at a higher level, by a higher level, a in, in a greater totality, a more holistic analysis. You understand more comprehensive. That's my point. There you go. Like the total reality. Why do you act so confused? You got it. I guess I'm trying to regurgitate it also because I think when we were initially reading Hegel, I had actually always, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, privilege objectivity over subjectivity that there is, is we're always trying to get to the truth. Yeah. But right now, what this feels like is that actually our subjective judgment and interpretation of maybe the objective events is more significant right now. Uh, interesting. I think it's, you, no, it, it oh, can't be so. Jake, 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 please, please. It can't be so one or, one or no, the no, other, no, no. I think. I just want to say one thing. Yes, you're absolutely right. And herein lies the problem. You know, just because we're studying Hegel, we, that doesn't mean that Hegel solved all of these problems. You are absolutely right. And so... <laughs> When we say that, uh, first of all, I agree with your concept, a comprehensive explanation that looks at this in more than just the financial uh, system, but looks more comprehensively and looks, again, dialectically, looking at things in their development in the internal contradictions that define them. But you're right. You are absolutely right. And I don't think I'm in a position to answer the question uh, <coughs> to your or my satisfaction of, of the, uh, are we, you so are we just looking at things objectively? No. No, 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 no. Wait a minute, 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 wait a minute. I know it's a shush, but it's like. No, no, see, listen. Or are we, in fact, back to Hume? You know, have we said that all of this is a result of our attempting to explain what is our or other human beings' experience. Yes, Nancy's. What's interesting about but Jacob, Jacob, yes, Jacob, yes, please, yes, please, please. Absolutely. Please. I don't mean to be disrespectful. No, no, I, I don't. I, I'm just, you asked 
that is a question at a philosophical level that we have to answer. That, and Jake is right about this, it's neither one or the other, it's the unity of them. And how we achieve that comprehensive explanation recognizing the unity of this. We here, are, that's what all this discussion is about philosophy and the of quantum mechanics and all of that. We're trying to learn and teach ourselves how to do this. And I'm not saying there's a textbook, but there's a professor. But Hegel's point is that this crisis, it's more to this than just what the financial analysts are saying. And because they, even all the articles, they won't acknowledge the comprehensiveness of the crisis. And it's kind of where we start. That, that's all. But you're, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. This is, this is very difficult. This is why, you know, if, if you recall in the discussion of um, Niels Bohr, Niels Bohr says that the experiment changes the object of, of study. He's right, but not totally right. Werner Heisenberg, there's uncertainty. You cannot accurately or absolutely predict any of this stuff, or most of it, he would say, because it's all uncertain. Well, I would agree with the uncertainty principle. However, <clears throat> that is not the end of the story. I hope I'm making myself clear. I think that, that what you're saying, um, I mean, maybe you want to say something else back. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I don't know what I'm talking <laughs> Go ahead, Chabar, yeah, I, I mean, I was thinking when this conversation is making me think about uh, this question I think we have been having for a while, um, you know, regarding the position of fact and truth. And, you know, I was thinking that, I mean, you know, it, it seems that, you know, the age of, you know, the age of religion and, you know, what the boy calls the age of thought, it was, it seems to be a, I mean, this period in human history where you know all human endeavor was towards seeking truth and so they you know they would i mean the existence of truth as an objective truth was taken for granted and you know like especially I mean, religion was one of the ways that people would seek truth yeah. and it seems that the current uh, I, mean, I mean you know the current era is especially the modern world today it's an, it's you know a world obsessed with fact and I think the, I mean, this, I mean, it's also become sort of a ruling class tendency of, you know, trying to put people down because, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the attack is always that, that, you know, you don't have all the facts. And I mean, I, I, I think it has, I mean, it, it, you know, has, has, you know, both, uh, I mean, it's at the, I mean, on one hand, it's this attempt to put people down who are trying to, to, to you know, put in an effort to understand the world. But I think it's also related to like this, 
uh, I think this uh, behavior in, in young people a lot, you know, which who suffer from a lot of, I think a lot of lack of confidence because you don't have all the facts mm -hmm. and therefore you don't think that you can uh, attempt to understand or you know, speak with authority about anything, right? And yeah, I mean, I was going back on, you know, this thing about facts and truth. And I, I, I went back to, you know, what I, I said, I think King mentions in one of his speeches, he says that, you know, facts are merely the absence of contradictions, while, you know, coherence, I mean, while, you know, truth is coherence among facts. Right? And I mean, this makes me think of what you were saying about objectivity and subjectivity, because I think there's something about what the role of people is in terms of, of people right i mean I, th I think in terms of truth it's always um i mean it's sort of related to what role people play in developing and understanding understanding truth i guess coherence in the sense of of you know meaning in that sense yeah. and i i mean i'll i'll end it so i mean i i think this is where i seem to have landed myself in a pitfall because this this seems to you know lead to the question so you know if if the question is between objectivity and subjectivity, like you know, we were talking, and if subjectivity is this attempt uh, of human beings to understand it, and this is what we say truth is, it's the it's 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 this, this attempt to develop meaning of facts to understand facts in their totality. Does that lead to truth being? <laughs> yeah. See. And, and, and Doe has hit on something. Doe, uh, I understand the fact versus truth. Um, I would, I think I would put it a little different than King. I think I would understand it a little bit different than King. And you're right about this, that the, those who uphold technology or science as technology are totally about factual evidence. Uh, and that's in the social sciences too. What is your data type of question? Uh, they never ask what is your philosophical method for reaching the truth? Because American pragmatism, which is an outgrowth of Humean and, and British empiricism, uh, does not believe that it is possible to achieve truth. They don't, they don't see that as a possibility. But they do say it is possible to get facts, to get data, and to then interpret them in many different ways. This is this is a very. Uh, I have to say, you know, uh, very honestly, that these are the questions that overwhelm me all the time. Um, one question, the question of truth, is it possible, is the question of the subject's relation to the object of, of human action, of history, you know what I'm saying? Um, if I might just one small thing, Nuri and I were discussing this. Nuri is a biologist, her comfort zone is natural science, but she's also into uh, literature, right? That is not her comfort zone. Is it fair to say that? Well, let me put it this way. 
and as a result, I think it's like similar to Doe, like it's easy to privilege the objective of the objective. Easy to privilege the what? Like objective. Yeah, 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 yeah. The interpretive, and so I in our conversation, I said Nuri, but the interpretive sciences are as rigorous, maybe more so, and even maybe more comprehensive than the natural sciences. Well, like literature, um, what we call the humanities, you know what I'm saying? Um, just, just like uh, Jake's talking about bringing Baldwin into it. That is, but that's, but, but hold on, let me just say, see that's part of, that's part of what you call the comprehensive explanation. That's what, he could bring Baldwin into it. Uh, uh, Jeremiah is talking about financial systems and it's, it's seamless. It's not like, oh, you're doing economics and I'm doing literature. No, they're all a part of the attempt to explain human agency past, which becomes objective, present, which is the subject, and the future, which is a historical movement. But it is, uh, it, it is not a, a separation. And, um, but, but let, let me call upon Divya. She's had, no, 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 let me call. I'm question of what we think objective is, right? And that it varies. In the Western epistemology, so like you die, but history is objective, it's going on. The march of history, right? But like people go away, but history is still going on. The world is still going on. And that is the objective. Now you are in that. But the object, the subjective position is, well, all of this isn't, I'm perceiving it. So this actually takes me back to Descartes, because what happens in the 18th century with European philosophy is different than how it was in the Renaissance. See, Descartes is saying, I think, therefore, so the mind, and not to say that Hegel is still in the mind, for him, the absolute is still within the mind. But Time stops when you die. Like you decompose, right? No, it, it's no, it, it's not. So like, time stops. Like you, as a subject, stop perceiving time when you no longer have a form. You're perceiving it, and if you know you're all, you're all quantum now. You say that we're composed of atoms and molecules and these subatomic particles, then it's like that's what you are. So if you don't put it all together and say, I am this human being, and this is not a Western perspective yeah. of subject object relations, yeah. of subject to <coughs> objectivity, because and then it goes back to the religious, but the only objective thing, the absolute, and it is different 
epistemology or Hindu epistemology or Buddhist epistemology or some, some Buddhist thing that you can say. But you know, it's like, I think it gets way more complicated and I'm not discounting the, the dialectic. I mean, but it, it doesn't fully explain and maybe it's not supposed to because Hegel is just one leg, but it doesn't for me explain and the relation of the, everything ends up in the material realm of things. You know, the question Let's, of- Let me just say this, Vivian. The question of the, yeah. if I can just finish of the, and society is still still material. There is an element of us that's nat that, that is natural, that is nature. But what is that element? And I think Du Bois had it closer than Hegel, which was the divinity of, of yeah, of man. And what uh, Tolstoy says, the asymptotic, you know, and the truth, the question of fact and truth is the facts, truth is the absolute. Facts help us exfoliate and reason towards the absolute. But the question is, what is that for me always with Hegel is what is the absolute for Hegel? And yeah. that will, I think, maybe help us with yeah. subject object. <laughs> she I, I she, she just said what I was going to say. Maybe. <laughs> no, maybe, I mean, but maybe. But, but let me let me call. Let me let let me let her. Yeah, let me let her. Yeah. So what what you would say? What is? What do you think? Well, uh, I got. I got I mean, I'm not really quite sure what I, I know I responded to this discussion, um, but Doc was just telling me about the quantity quality relationship. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I thought that stupid because I was trying to read through this chapter. I don't know why I was getting very kind of like, I like kept reading over this chapter one piece and um I have to keep going back to stuff. So obviously I'm getting kinda stuck because I seem to also have these I have priorities over um different things about but I, I, you know I don't know if this is right but um Tony correct me. Um, but it seems in some ways that um Hegel is trying to to or helping trying something I don't know to describe um, like a thing you know um, which could be anything I guess and how it develops as according as part of it but what I'm getting at is like okay well I think uh, the quality of something as closer to I guess the essence of the notion of something, then nothing is wrong. No, 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 I don't know. It's <laughs> um, but like the quantity of the like things or whatever is like um, not in relation to like the environment or the social circumstances that the thing is in, which is more of what you're saying. 
how something is affected by, um, you know, uh, the surrounding historical issues and thus the quality of it can change, uh, I think, right? I think in a lot of ways you all are exposing how inadequate I am to doing this. Oh, <laughs> no, oh, really, I, I have oh, to admit this. I feel say, very inadequate to be honest. To any point in any way of what I wanted to say <laughs> is that as um like when think I at least am thinking about um I guess this embark to um the um the uh have what is the truth and things like that? Um, I guess I have to answer, or not answer, but just I just have to say that for at least for me, there's always been the kind of why to things every day. There wasn't there wasn't a certain like like I would go to class and. Uh, I would know that there's a logic to what I'm being taught. Mm -hmm. Like there's, you know, there's like conclusions and things that are being made. But I only know that because I'm like, okay, well, if this, well, for example, this might not be what I was thinking at the time, but it would be like, okay, if this is not Afrocentric, then it's like European and thus X. Um, and that made sense. Um, so I knew that there are logic in things, um, but, uh, and that caused me to sort of like reject a lot of stuff. Be like, oh, this is not either revolutionary, whatever I wanted to say, or not peaceful. Mm -hmm. But okay, then mm -hmm. I want to say that I know that reading Hegel will help me better, or I don't know the right word, because I know I need discipline too. But I can't. Usually, and what I'm saying about drawing, drawing to conclusions, I mean, I can't really make sense of everything all the time. And uh, it's a little complicated in general. And it makes all the sense in the world what you're saying, right? So I know that free school is helping me uh, or train me to be able to make sense of things when they happen and see them like similar how uh, Yvonne pointed out the, you know, difference between assembly versus not. Well, what that's also saying is that there is a uh, opinion uh, or a certain type of trajectory uh, or, or they, yeah, I'm jumping, sorry, sorry, What I'm saying is that you could draw a conclusion based on the opinions made in the, uh, in the vote outcome, um, which is important in terms of um, discussing where things could be going. Right. Or things like but that. See, it isn't this, you know, um, I think we should. I don't mean to. No, 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 no. <laughs> if we just take a step back, what is Hegel attempting to do and establish in the science of logic? Mm -hmm. Okay. He's trying to, and this is your word, he's trying to construct a comprehensive method of arriving at the truth. Mm -hmm. 
You know what I'm saying? He's attempting. That's what he's trying to do. Um, one of the things for certain, he didn't complete it. You know? But, yeah. Um, but what is so valuable to me is the attempt. Yeah. It was a very brilliant and is a very brilliant attempt. And as you revolutionaries and genuine scientists, natural, social, have defended Hegel through, through these almost 200 years since him, have defended him. You know, yeah, women hold the women have defended his effort. We have entered into that effort. We've entered into it in a world that says a cynical world. And I think once you deny the possibility of knowing the truth, of arriving at the truth. It forces you into cynicism. We ain't going to know it. We can't know it. And if you can't know it, you ain't going to change it. You see what I'm saying? So we have entered into that. And where this will take us is not a given. We don't, we don't know yet. And I, I agree. I agree with your optimism, Serafina. Thus far, it has been helpful. It's not solved everything, but for us to go from what we're discussing today to um, uh, and from what we did some weeks ago with quantum mechanics and and then wherever else we're going to go in this of uh, the discussions of Hume and Kant and Hegel, well, it has helped us to explain and to understand. I use to understand and explain comprehensively complexity. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And <laughs> we get to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if you want to make the argument that the great religions of the world have pursued these same matters using a different method, I would say yes. Yeah, you Yeah, the great religion. But I would say yes, but with this also. But we are not, we are not, we are not pursuing a religious or theological project here and now. That does not say that that is not worthy of pursuit. That's not what we're doing right now. And so we have just, well, um, you know, we did the year of Du Bois. What were we reading? The Philadelphia Negro, Black Reconstruction in America, The World in Africa. Um, Divya is now reading the novels at, at the Free Library. I mean, so all of this is part of a comprehensive effort to explain complexity. And 
you know, and this is what makes it even more exciting that this is becoming a project that involves more and more people. I have a question. Oh, be it at the free line. And this is when we did the Quest of the Silver Fleas. Now we're doing uh, the ordeal of Mansard uh, and et cetera. But it's, it's involving more and more people in this kind of discourse. And we're, we're, to say this, that we're doing this, is to also say we're not doing something else. We're definitely not doing identity politics. We're not doing uh, LGBTQ. We're not doing Afrocentrism. We're not, in other words, we're not doing reductionist studies, which means reducing everything to disconnected binaries. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? We're seeking, that's what we mean by that higher order of explanation. Mm -hmm. What is it saying in its comprehension, in totality? Mm -hmm. Or what could it mean? Well, go, go ahead, Jerry. <laughs> that, go, go, Jerry. Well, I feel like this may be totally wrong, but part of, I guess, from the study so far, what I've gotten from it is this, like this thing of logic, like the logic of things, the logic of interactions, which I feel like it's not, I mean, I feel like sometimes I think when you talk about the objective world or something, it can feel like we're removing agency from people. But I feel like actually what, what we're arriving towards or what at least I, I think it seems like we're arriving towards is, it's like on the one hand, history or reality or like these social relations are not purely just whatever anyone makes of it. And there is a logic to the development of, of like the interactions, but also where, like where it could go. And, and I think, I guess part of, like I guess how I view it is, and yeah, maybe this is also wrong, but like there is a logic to peace, I think that we believe in. And it's like, like almost on an instinctual level, on a gut level, on a moral level, like it makes sense. There's a logic to it. But just because it makes sense doesn't mean that it will automatically happen. That is where struggle is involved. And I think that's kind of, I guess, what the dialectic describes, which is there is a logic. And the object subject. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like the unity of those. Um, like there's a logic to peace, there's a logic, I guess, to it, but you know, you can't just sort of be like, oh, like things will just work out. Yeah. I, I, that, that, I guess that's how, how, how I've been kind of understanding things. Uh, let me, let me, let me let Doe come back I, in since I, he kind of initiated this, and then, and then, and then Jake. Kind of, kind of if, if it's all right with you, I appreciate it. Um, I have a question. You know, we talk about religion and stuff like that. You know, we're not a, I, I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, say that we're a religious organization by any means. Um, I don't know where, where that would come from. Are we an organization? No, I'm only joking. I'm only joking. We can talk, we can talk, we, that's a different conversation. No, 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 I'm only playing. <laughs> I know, I know you is. Well, go ahead, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, that's why you gotta kind of watch the games, you know? So, uh, um, <clears throat> but what I would, I would ask is that, I mean, uh, 
didn't Fidel like wasn't his high school like a G suite like a G, like yes, a just suite? Yeah, wasn't that wasn't that where he like learned in Mexico? I think that's an interesting. I think that's interesting. Just in terms of the bio, biographically speaking, in terms of the history, uh, you know, Fidel. I don't think you know he wasn't like a. Jacob, you can't tell me. Hold on, I got to conduct this. But listen, I didn't let us finish what I was saying. I know, I know you did. But I would like. Let oh us God. stay I'm focused. No, 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 we have I to be focused. focused. That's the thing. That's what I'm asking. No, 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 no. With all due respect. No. With all due respect. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I, let's just, I mean, let's not let this slip by us. This question put on the table by Doug. Okay. Divyat, stay. We want to stay on this question for the time being. Yeah. Um, and it goes back to what you were saying about uh, like religion and science. And, and this goes back to subject there are different ways of fathoming that relation of subject and object, as I think we kind of established in different religions, but also different philosophical traditions. So now this brings us to this question of, well, are we, look, we did the year of Gandhi, could we separate religion and science there? I, I don't think so, because there, the, alongside the reason is the question of love. Yeah. And that was the mo moving force. And yeah. re love is beyond me. You can't really rationalize love. So there's this, and I think Kanji goes there. So it's like the question of love and reason, uh, I think, brings us to, well, and then the question of science. Religion and science are not opposites, in my understanding. Some Hindu philosophy has several schools of science. There are six schools of philosophy in Hinduism. And one of them, I mean, so many of them are scientific. Like what we call science is what the ancient Hindus were doing as science. Christian science. Descartes is like a clergyman. So many of those Renaissance like people, like they, Thomas More, you know, Saint Thomas. So let me say this. So it's like, Olivia, I, I completely agree. Oh, King, you know what I no, mean? No, 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 no. I could, but, but, but let, let me just ask. All I'm asking is this, you know, and this is wonderful. I mean, and this is the free school at its best. However. You know, is it, I mean, there are multiple critiques of dialectical logic of Hegel and all of it, and they're uh, worthy of consideration, but is it possible for us to work through this without having to do everything? No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. No, no, no. no. But see, I, I understand the religious, you know, and I, it's... But then well, there's a religious but, piece in Hegel. That, well, but but we're talking about the logic now. Yeah, the no, science of sense, See, I, look, you yeah. will not get an argument against religion from me. No, it's not. No, 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 I'm just saying. Because <laughs> if you were to ask me... I was me, questioning the separation of religion and science. Yeah. Well, okay, that's and that's a question. But, but hold it, it's not a question for right now. 
I mean, we, we have <laughs> but it's like what 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 why but it was always for me like why you know hey okay hegel hegel or focus on hegel but then there's i mean we have options and possibilities absolutely no that no, was that was, you, that was what i had said in james you're absolutely right but with the with the with the proviso mm -hmm. let we're trying to work through this, like, like um, uh, Jeremiah brought up the question of logic. And what is logic in a Hegelian sense? It's almost like what we say when we mean law, patterns. You know what I'm saying? Now, he could be completely wrong. Or he could be more right than he is wrong. Now, we brought up here, we talked about Hume, we talked about Kant. American pragmatism. We had a hell of a debate with my great friend Dwight Murph. <laughs> I accused him of being a human. He said, "No, he's not." Yeah, but, he <laughs> you know, but but there are certain things in the process of knowledge. The very fact that we're doing philosophy in the midst of a of a breakdown crisis. A crisis of a breakdown of a system, maybe. That we're doing philosophy. Some people say, "Well, oh, you all are running from the task of revolution." You could get that argument. Others would say that you're running from the task of um, of of morality, mm -hmm. seeing the moral imperative in all of this. Right. Well, I would say not at all. But. There is, and I'll just, this is part, I would say that part of the justification for appropriating Hegel in a moment of deep crisis is based upon other periods of crisis and who turned, like, you know, we were reading uh, Angles on Schelling and Hegel and rescuing and defending Hegel against the attacks upon him in the 1840s and 1830s. Um, then, of course, what Marx does, how he in, you know, appropriates, appropriates it in Dust Capital, and, and then finally Lenin, and then afterwards. But I, I honestly think it, it's worthwhile, especially when you talk about dialectics, that everything exists in a state of movement, that the basic law well, as Engels said, the basic laws of dialectics is the unity of opposites, quantity changing into quality, and the negation of negation. I mean, that in itself, if we did nothing else but try to understand that, now, of course, Doe brings in the object-subject dialectic, very important, and, and unresolved totally in, in quantum mechanics. That's unresolved. That's the debate between Einstein and, and Niels Bohr's and them cats. And when, and I guess I have to turn to Eddie for this, Eddie says, <laughs> you know, but the whole question of, oh, did Einstein lose in 1925? My argument is, how could you say that? The debate is, uh, it's not solved. You know what I'm saying? at the philosophical level. So I think if you were to ask me, there's a reason why philosophy 
was impoverished and made into this barren, uh, ultimately film criticism, feminist criticism or race. You, you know what I'm saying? Where it then abandons the whole question of knowledge and how we know and what we can know. That's all, that's all I'm saying. And it's, it, I can say based upon my limited life experience, it's worth the effort. It is worth the effort. Um, of course, uh, it's like, oh, let me just say this one thing, Derek, let me just make one. Just what Doe raised, this is very an important question. And, and you know, how it's, and it's not answered absolutely, it's, you know, but we could avoid, just kick the can down the road. Oh, we, we can't understand that, we're not gonna deal with it, the hell with it. Or we could, to the best of our ability, to philosophical and actual experience, address the question and then look at multiple sciences, social science, economic science, quantum mechanics. How was this dealt with in all of those fields? And we're not gonna answer all of this today. So it's going on, we're, we'll come back to it, we'll think about it. But let me let Emily come in and then Derek. Um, well, I just wanted to say that it reminds me, because when Jeremiah started talking about the logic of truth, and we were laying down some like objectives and perspectives, also like and this idea of also the importance of um, things in motion, like like understanding. I think Yusuf Stockton previously speaks that Hegel also sets the stage for understanding things. Like we need to understand things developing. Mm -hmm. um, and but it, it brought me back to when we were reading Russian America. And I feel like our conversation of philosophy now also makes me understand more why Du Bois made it a point in Russian America to talk about law and chance. Like in his analysis of the crisis between Russia and America, which he's writing about, but he's also talking about the future of humanity and how he, like he's setting the, I don't know whether the word's ideological, philosophical, but in order to even understand what's happening and also understand humanity's future. Like Du Bois makes it a point to explain what he means. Like he says law and chance, but I feel like what he's actually, it's almost like a furthering of what we're talking about. Well, it's object subject question. Another iteration of object subject dialectics. Oh, oh go ahead, Derek, I'm sorry. So I'm not saying the course, but in the Islamic <laughs> world, and I'm, going from the embryo mm -hmm. and, and and then I'm use Hegel over here. Mm -hmm. And then in the Islamic world and it's evolving and changes and different renaissances that then in the Islamic world it, some of them some of them reverberated into into what is now Russia, some of them reverberated back and forth into India and then these kind of different kind of metaphysicians, metaphysics, you know, what we're talking about at a much higher level than we're not even in the country where we in any of these levels yet. Right, right. And so this is going on, especially in the Islamic world, 
when it came to like that's science. That's right. Well, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I, I mean, forgive me. This compound of why the Hegel come in my lens over over my own study over a period of time, but he's not the only one that fitted into my lens. It's all these people, wonderful people from like India. You want me to write all these names down no, and, put, no, and bring a whole big family? So all these kind of types of thinkers that Hegel borrowed particulars from. But you, you, you keep thinking that this person just made up these things like Inclined all these things that we love about Hegel and I love about music and classics, but there's thinkers from these other Renaissance areas from India and, and not just Arabia by itself and Sri Lanka, all these places, all these kind of meta, these, these people are talking about problems in a modern sense of what we're talking about. Yeah, it's the whole physics field. But let me ask you that. To acknowledge that, which I readily do, is not, but we have this text. You know, a lot of people would say that uh, quantum mechanics is really uh, applying the metaphysics of ancient Hinduism. Yes, Some would they, say, well, hold it, wait a minute. Yes. Some would say even Buddhism. Yes, they have, yes. Then others, others would yes. say that yes. their explanation of quantum mechanics is not. Buddhism or Hinduism, it's LSD. <laughs> no, they did. You know, well, but, well, well, that's now, I'm not going to say the well, point. It's true. But, in that but, well. Oh, yes, true. It's true. true. In that no, well. And you're right. But, but see, this I agree with you. We're talking about, at this level, the general metaphysical debate. Yeah. And it's the now, subject. the problem is that we're not involved in that right now in the preschool. Yeah. But you're right, there's nothing, but you can't, what I'm saying is, is it, is it permissible? The parameter? No, it, yeah, right, right. Is it, is it permissible that we say at this time in this space, we're looking at this lot, you know, questions of logic and dialectics, that's all. Now, we, it might come to pass in the course of this, mm -hmm. that we discover mm -hmm. that Hegelian metaphysics mm -hmm. and logic mm -hmm. were absolutely wrong. We can, we can find that out now, but we are not going to find it out unless we engage it. That's all I'm saying. And I, I agree with you. When, when, Divya, when you raise metaphysical questions as a as fundamental, I have no argument. Now, the only thing is this. Can we study Hegel science of life? Well, we are, is the question. That we, are, what? Because we are studying. Definitely. But, but by asking, how does he imagine that the relation of the body the mind, the self, okay. in relation to time, space, and causality. Okay, and all and, I'm and asking then, is oh, this. So I'm just trying to mess but it yeah, up. That, yeah, that's cool. That's but cool. That is, but can I ask you, would you be prepared to put in the work both of the phenomenology of spirit and the science of logic? 
to help us. I mean, phenomenology of spirit, for example. Uh, all I'm saying, all I'm yeah, saying. I, yeah, I've not, worked on this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really? And I, I, all I'm saying is let all of us put our shoulders to the wheel. Yeah. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, you know, like, 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 like I'm telling you, believe me, I am a beneficiary of this, of this project that we, and I, I feel very, very unprepared <laughs> to lead it. <laughs> but like, like Baldwin said, in the long meantime, yeah. in the long meantime, I'll do it. You can't cut off somebody's shoulder if they try to help you. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just to keep it 100, you know, a lot of people leave the free school. They leave the free school out of dissatisfaction. They say they're dissatisfied. We're not reading enough. Uh, we're not reading black books enough. I don't think that's the uh, no, no, I'm telling you what people say. Okay. A lot of other people, I mean, people leave a project. This ain't, everybody is not, we're all, I don't want to take that You know, how do you put it? I mean, everything ain't for everybody. Some people, we did a conference on China. Everybody didn't agree with a conference on China. We did a year of Gandhi. There were people who disagreed with that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there are a lot of things that the free school has done that people disagreed. There were people, when I announced I voted for Trump, oh, they left the free school. I can't be involved in that. You understand what I mean? I hate to go back to that. But y'all know where I'm coming from. That's a great thing. Yeah, I can announce that I was not tactical in announcing it because it brought a lot of heat down on the preschool. But go ahead, Seraphina. I'm sorry, Mike. Well, I mean, at least, you know, at least the people, the nice idea of people, I can't choose my own word today. But it just it opens up issues, I guess that we've gone over before. But I, you know, there's a for me a deeper level of understanding of how why these issues are the way they are, say in philosophy or in sciences, um, or in you know activists, or um, I think studying Hegel. And in studying Hegel, um, for me, it's like a deeper relationship to what the free school is and what it is doing. Um, political education or to be able to understand what you're saying, the comprehensive complexities in um, things. He said this too. And um, these things about the object subject dialectic. Um, or every time that you're talking about Einstein Zion and Niels Bohr, like there are the developments in art um, and the, those transitions, transitionary periods 
Um, that also had to do with a few things about philosophy. Um, and that's period, because there are developments in thought due to historical context mm -hmm. and things like but that. But is that the only but, development of thought? No, but what I'm saying is that because we're studying Hegel, mm -hmm. um, it's a method, a way of thinking. The, the logic yeah. of peace is yeah. what you're talking about. In the very fact so there's more than that one Jeremiah method. framed it that way is Like that is something we've discussed before. There's more but than I think that we're being able to understand that, well, for instance, this thing about a process, the process of oh. development, in particular in this case, either that be a revolutionary situation or um, what, what, like a qualitative change in society. Yeah, and, um, and this is so bad. You know, and the other thing, whether Hegel's absolutely right or not, for young people to yeah. read this, yes. to, I bet you there would be less <laughs> problems of people reading Kant's particular reason. But that's what, too, but, no one, you, no one even gets into, I'm not, I, I don't even, on a, on a, for my own, speaking of my own, from my own standpoint, no, no, whatever, you know, I, I, I mean, you know, we're talking about Hegel, you know, see what I, what I saw, like, we were talking about in January is, you know, we probably focused on Hegel, you said Hegel discovered an ancient logic, how does, how does, Hegel discovered ancient logic was a question that came up in my head, of course. Absolutely. But no, no, no. That, that, that's, that's, right. that goes that goes in more ways than one, though. It's you know how does he do it, but then how is that how that's formulated, you know? So on on that note, but I, I you know I also feel that Hegel. Can I can I just can I if I could just say I, I I'm absolutely no there was never I I don't ever I've never had a problem with. Hegel, I've had I, I contested the formulation like I was trying to you know convey in January, um, but at the end of the day I was, uh, you know at, you know you know Hegel I think he can open a lot of doors for us, yeah. but so could Baldwin and so could, absolutely and so could Malcolm absolutely and so, and so could King you know yeah, so that's yes. why that's why that's where my confusion was kind of coming in from so I was like where is this coming from. No, no, but you, but you. That's you, what I said. That's literally what I said. Con. You were gonna say something. No, I wouldn't. I oh, said I don't, I don't know anything. I said I don't oh, know yeah. anything about Kant. See a lot of people, but I, my, I, I was asserting that Kant is a far less controversial figure in today's philosophical, ideological uh, environment than Hegel is. There's a reason why, and I, I think this is something we discussed in the beginning, that uh, Hegel is seen as this. Uh, um, Tibia, how do you say dark bad in Latin? Huh? How do you say dark bad in Latin? Dark bad? In that, in Latin. You know, um, well, dark it's the thing, dark bad. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, oh, kind of bad. I forget. Um, but, you know. Um, like a black sheep kind of thing? Yeah. He was a rebel. He, yeah, right. He was See, a rebel. Hegel is seen as the dangerous outside in Western philosophy. And yeah, they argue, and he's the, the great enemy of, um, of Western liberalism, of Anglo-American liberalism. Probably, uh, uh, no. That's what I'm saying. Yes, I'm not even going to say that. You know, the, 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 the,
There's a reason. Oh, hold on one minute, Jay. There's a reason for this. Um, you know, it's argued that he, that that Hegel leads to Marx, and Marx leads to Lenin, and the October Revolution, and Lenin leads to Stalin, and all of that leads to totalitarianism, and all of these negative things, and the end of civilization, and all of that. They attribute all of these dark things to Hegel, not to Kant. Uh, and Kant is 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 not is not a throwaway either. A lot of people would say, well, they're all Western white thinkers. They're all imperialists. They're all colonialists. Um, maybe they weren't, but that's an assumption. But the thing is, especially for young people, you need to read whether you agree or not great works. I don't care whether it's the science of logic or war and peace or uh, uh, black reconstruction. And one of the things about the free school, we have never shied away from reading great works. And we've encouraged it, but we've not only read great works, we have tried to apply the findings and theoretical conclusions of great works. Oh, we have to get ready to. Oh, yes, and I'm sorry. Could, could you um, give us, because we have to really prepare for next week, but please, Emily, and speak um, loud. Well, other, others were involved as well, just bring up. But next, so we have originally, there was an event called Korea, Vietnam, and Afro America, our shared struggle for peace and democracy. It was supposed to be Jan in January, but it got rescheduled to next week, March 12th, um, because of a snowstorm. So instead of preschool, we will be meeting at the Asian Arts Initiative next week. Um, and so for our online listeners as well, you can tune into the event online through the Viet Love Khmer Facebook page, which we'll link in the chat on Facebook. Um, but it's, it's an event, I and mean, we talked about it before, but it's an event that came about after months of reading between Vietnam Khmer and the Vietnam Buddhist Group. Um, Just tell everybody what Vietnam is. Vietnam Khmer is a group of Southeast Asians who um, have been reading together, and then the Vietnam Buddhist Group originally was reading from the Vietnam Conference of the Asian, the newly mm -hmm. free Asian and African countries meeting together for the first time. Um, but together, we've been studying the Korean War, the mm -hmm. Vietnam War, but also most importantly, it's like bringing it to today, especially in today's crisis, but also in America, um, the crisis of young people. It's a question of how do you renew a certain spirit um, that was shared between, you know, a certain strivings and struggles of people for people's democracy shared across Afro-America, the Korean mm -hmm. people, of the Vietnamese people and what knowing that history could do for young people today in this country, especially in a city like Philadelphia, where young people have everything to inherit, um, but the history is not well known. So that's the event um, next week. It's at 10 a.m. There will be free lunch. Um, there will be- I'm working there on that. That's Pine Street, that's right. That's right on. Hey, Derek, you could park outside my house and we'll walk down together. Oh, cool. Let's hook that up.
<laughs> no, you know I will. I'll put my card down there. It's on God. It's just not far from my But I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Yet, did you want to go? I mean, I can share my experience and I share how anything about the program and the class. But we will, there are many multiple panels. There's also an Afro-Asian dialogue. The question of what does the role of education play in encouraging young people across racial and ethnic boundaries to come together and fulfill a positive vision for community in the city um, and learn to be brothers and sisters in today's times. Um, and so on that panel will be Catherine Blunt, Pastor Teho Lee, um, the school, and then Brother Gregory Muhammad. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's the panel, and we'll also have cultural performances. Um, Korean children from New Jersey are coming to do traditional drumming wow. and dance, um, and there'll be a poetry recitation as well. We're hoping you can all join next week. Share it. This is going to be one of the great uh, events of this year, believe me. I can, only, I can only congratulate you all on this. It's a But I think we have to get ready to go because Serafina has to close up and go to work. Everybody got to close up. Yeah. Close this time, it's close this time.